0: Stripped down party that is rebuilding on the fly.
1: Although the thing that I always I have these conversations with people, and the thing I remind people, and again, we don't know what was what precedent extends. We all watched those Republican debates, which were insane. They were the ugliest, the yeah. de- most depraved indecorous displays that anyone had Did ever seen. Did
2: you see seen. Fox Business this morning? I mean, it's still uh, yeah, happening. Yeah, right, but I'm yeah, saying we, right, wa- right. we
1: watched them go after each other. We saw Ted Cruz like pivot to the camera and be like, you're a sniveling coward, and all this stuff. We all watched it. And then at the end of it, people Locked thought, it well, out. they've all destroyed each other, uh-huh. and they've nominated this complete ridiculous buffoon
0: Maybe. who is
3: now the president of the United States. President
1: Meaning, president. like, I'm not sure that we know which dynamics do and don't lead to strong no, candidates.
4: We I keep reminding everybody that night when Trump won, we were all here in this room. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no victory speech written or loaded in any computer.
2: I was in communication with sources at the Trump campaign. And I think I, think I was sitting right there where you are, Claire. And around 1030, I was texting with uh, a source. And the source said, um, do you think we should have a victory speech? And I was like... Yeah, probably. And uh, and it, like, it slayed me to say it. But, you know, w- when people talk about PTSD, it's in the media yeah. too. I mean, we got yeah, it wrong sure. but,
5: but but Trump didn't think he was going to win either. But how do you restore a sense of w- the America that we've said we are for the longest time? Because what Donald Trump has done is dismantle that America and replace it with this with Deliberate cruelty to children with this hideous system that legitimately gets talked about as concentration camps. And that's the debate we end up having, what to call it. But what we're seeing is horror. And the horror is deliberate. You know, I'm going to quote Adam Serwer again. The cruelty is the point. His base wants to see this cruelty to prove to them that he's hurting the right people. I want to see how these Democrats respond to that. You know, the world is watching us deteriorate. And Donald Trump is leading it joyfully. People like Stephen Miller, this is what they want. And this is what they want to show the world, that we're willing to be as cruel as you could possibly be, maximally cruel to children in order to scare brown people out of coming here. It's horrifying I, I just I've been able I've been sleepless watching it happen and so I'm really hoping to hear from the uh, the debate participants tonight and not just the two Texans explain to us because remember the Democratic Party is utterly dependent on people of color they're dependent on black women they're dependent on Latinos that is how they win so explain to those people and to just anyone with a conscience. How do you change this if you become president? How do you undo the existential, nightmarish damage that this president has done to everything about what we've said we are? Everything. Even if you doubted when uh, American presidents said that we are this shining city on a hill, even if you thought it was B.S. and a sales job, at least they said it. Donald Trump doesn't <laughs> even believe it. He doesn't even want to be a shining city on a hill.
6: Over Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans from his undisclosed bunker. Here's your host, Tony Reed.
4: And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It's the 29th of June, year of our Lord 2019. Going a day early. And I'll be talking a little softer once again cuz the wife is napping as we speak. That intro was MSDNC with pundits saying they got PTSD off 2016, which, God, they hate the military. You don't know what PTSD is, whoever the fuck you are. And Joy Reid saying, can the Dems overcome Trump's evil base? That's a projection, boys and girls, because they're so far left, it's just scary and We're going to play it. It's just unbelievable, these debates. They cannot find the left. They just keep going left and left and left and left. And it's scaring normal Democrats because I think they realize this isn't going to work in a general election. And the more you put these clown shows on, the worse your chance of winning in 2020 is. But I wanted to start... And recognize the city, Sydney, Florida. Wow. You've never come up on the stats. 169 views, or listens, to the podcast. So I wanted to right up front say, hey, Sydney, Florida. I love Pensacola, Florida. So Sydney's got to be pretty close to Pensacola on cool factor, because Florida's awesome. And I wanted to thank you for listening to this show, because you blew up the stats. So, whoever's listening down there, thanks for listening. I hope it's least entertaining, and I'll try to make this one even more entertaining. And how can I do that? By playing
1: <laughs> the worst of the debates. You know, this is one of those moments where I have to figure out whether I'm nice mm. or whether I do what I get paid to do. Well, I and guess I guess since. I want to keep getting paid. No. <laughs> I'm going to do nice. with, with apologies to our friends here and watching what I get paid to do. Last night was a disaster for the Democratic party. My only hope is people were not watching and I will tell you why. First of all on policy. Well, let, let's talk about the goal which every Democrat believes, which is we have to beat Donald Trump, right? So they're lined up in trench warfare, ready to get out of the trenches and charge and fight Donald Trump. Instead, they all turn their guns on each other and shoot each other. And everybody's yelling at each other all night. Everybody. Like if, if you were watching, if you were an American and this is your introduction to these candidates and the Democratic Party, and all you see are 12 people yelling at each other, trying to interrupt each other, insulting each other, you're like, you know what? I thought Donald Trump was a clown show. I'm changing the channel. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Won't be popular among the base. But if you want to beat Donald Trump, you may want to listen. It is a position of every Democrat on that stage that illegal immigrants, if they cross the border illegally, should get health care for life. It is then... The position of every Democrat on that stage that if they cross the border illegally, it's not even illegal anymore. Now, that may make Democrats feel really good about themselves, right? But that loses Wisconsin, that loses Pennsylvania, that loses Florida, that loses North Carolina, it may lose Virginia. And what these candidates, many of them new to the process, need to understand is... That we as a nation were shocked by the picture we saw a few days ago. But there is a vast middle ground between Donald Trump's immigration policies and the free for all immigration policies that were pushed last night. I'm going to say also, the front runner, Joe Biden, man, he was off his game. I must say, won't make friends here. It was one of the more disturbing debate performances I have seen since Ronald Reagan's first debate in 1984. Mm -hmm. It was one of those moments where you're going, my God, is he going to complete his sentence? There were times he said he was going to give us three points. He gave us one and a half and then did something that Joe Biden has never done. Gave back his time. But time's up. No, Joe Biden doesn't do that. Joe Biden runs through stop signs. He did that last night. Bernie Sanders was yelling all night. Bernie Sanders didn't prepare for the debate. It showed because he basically gave the same debate performances this year that he gave four years ago. Mm -hmm. It may have worked when it was Bernie Sanders against Hillary Clinton. It did not work last night. And I could go on. And on, I will say the one thing about Kamala Harris, everybody's talking about what an extraordinary moment that was about bussing. She's on the show today. So we can discuss this and give her a little bit of of time to come here and figure out a way to whack me for saying this. But is there really a Democrat today? in 2020 that wants to say, I support busing? Is there really a Democrat today that wants to say, even in 74, I would have supported busing when the overwhelming uh, majority of Americans opposed busing? And by the way, if you're talking about segregation and integration, I guarantee you schools in Miami today are just as segregated by neighborhood as they were back in the 1970s in parts of San Francisco. It was unpopular then, it's unpopular now. So, is this the position of the Democratic Party in 2020? That we are going to get seven-year-old children, we're going to drive them an hour, take somebody from San Francisco and make them go across to Oakland for school, a second grader? No. No, please. I want Donald Trump to lose. My hope is... That only Trump was watching last night from Osaka in between in between snuggling up to Vladimir Putin.
5: I think Kamala Harris owned the night. Uh it was uh, a master per- masterful performance from her unexpected in many ways. I think a lot of us went into this debate thinking it would be a brawl between Sanders uh and 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 Biden and it was unexpected to have her go for for this uh topic around race uh and around bussing and use her personal story uh to really prosecute the case against his position on bussing. Kamala Harris
7: had a moment. That was two hours long. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she, I mean, a star was born. You said tonight. you said earlier tonight at yeah. eight o'clock that you yeah. were waiting for Kamala Harris I was, to have her moment. You've and her for and listen, I, listen, a star was born tonight. Uh, this is a masterful uh, performance. Uh, she completely dominated the stage. And most importantly, she would kick Donald Trump's butt. And she proved it tonight. That was if, if you had any doubt that you could nominate a woman that would take Donald Trump to the woodshed. She just took it away from you.
3: You have staked your candidacy on the issue of climate change. It is first, second and third priority for you. You said it's all the issues. Let's get specific. We're here in Miami, which is already experiencing serious flooding on sunny days as a result of sea level rise. Parts of Miami Beach and the Keys could be underwater in our lifetimes. Does your plan save Miami? Senator Mitch McConnell says that his most consequential achievement as Senate Majority Leader was preventing President Obama from filling a Supreme Court seat. Having served with Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, do you believe they would confirm your court nominees? Mayor de Blasio, as an executive in the largest city in this country, you are used to saying what you want to have happen and having it happen. If you nominate a Supreme Court nominee as President of the United States and Mitch McConnell is still Senate Majority Leader, what makes you believe that he would allow you to make a nominee?
7: Senator Warren, I want to continue on the Mitch McConnell thing because you have a lot of ambitious plans. You have a plan for that. Okay. We talked about the Supreme Court. Do you have a plan to deal with Mitch McConnell if you don't beat him in the Senate, if he's still sitting there as the Senate Majority Leader, it's very plausible you be elected president with a Republican Senate. Do you have a plan to deal with Mitch
8: McConnell?
3: I do. Secretary Castro, I'd like to talk to you about something that Sec- Senator Booker just mentioned there, the idea of active shooter drills in schools. A school shootings seem like an almost every day or every week occurrence now. They don't make a complete news cycle anymore, no matter the death toll. As parents are so afraid as their kids go off to school that their kids will be caught up in something like this. Next to nothing has changed in federal law that might affect the prevalence of school shootings. Is this a problem that is going to continue to get worse over our lifetimes? Or is there something that you would do as president that you really think would turn it around?
8: And some of the Democratic candidates spent the hours leading up to tonight's debate visiting a center here in Florida where over 13,000 migrant children have been placed since March of last year as outrage grows over the conditions inside these facilities. Here's NBC's Jacob Soboroff.
0: Sitting just 30 miles south of tonight's debate stage, the country's largest facility for unaccompanied migrant children where conditions have been called prison-like. The for-profit privately-run shelter becoming a must-visit for 2020 hopefuls.
1: It is a
5: stain on our country.
0: Senators Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar both stopping by just hours before the debate. This president has put us into this
2: situation uh, with an inhumane policy.
5: What's happening here at Homestead is wrong. And we will fight it with everything
0: we have. Oh, yeah. Earlier this week, Congressman Eric Swalwell was denied access. I mean, if there's nothing to hide, you'd let a congressman Thank in right? Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, Kamala Harris, and Pete Buttigieg all planning visits before the weeks Beto had been having his apple polished by the media for some
1: time. Mm-hmm. He could raise a lot of money. Preston, you know this better than anybody. The Democrats threw all their resources at him to try to beat Cruz. Mm-hmm. He got a lot of... Artificial help, let's call it, yeah, in yeah, that no, race. But, but, he but didn't organically was- des- d- design his own, uh, his own fundraising base. I, I- he got help.
9: Well, he got helped by those who wanted to help him. He was not—he was not a darling of the Democratic Party, that's for sure. They didn't even want him to run initially, Chris. I mean, they didn't want him. Well, once he, was in, anyways, there well, once Cruz, we he was in there, he was in the there, and then all of a sudden, he started to raise money. I, I will say this: Better work on a stage of ten people is a lot different than better work on a stage with the one on one,
1: polishing his apple. I mean, people pick favorites yeah. in this business. He needed to come tonight and show I was a favorite for a reason early on, and he didn't do that.
10: I certainly think that he was a really held up by the media as an example of someone who is a rising star in the party, very much stemming from his almost defeat of Ted Cruz in the Texas Senate race. I think... O'Rourke and Buttigieg are similar, at least in my opinion, in this way. They have a really shiny, nice veneer, um, but the media kind of perpetuates narratives that it's, it wants to be true. So you had Vogue um, recently calling Pete Buttigieg um, the pol- uh, the sexy guy who's also a policy wonk. I don't remember at any point reading a really definitive piece on Pete Buttigieg's Pete Buttigieg's. He actually said the opposite. He said, agenda. I'm not going
4: with policy details right <laughs> exactly. now. I'm going with feel and introduction. You know, you usually have to make comments after stuff like that, but there's really no need to make comments. They they just stand for themselves. We'll definitely hit it on our AOC section today and fire for effect with the who's going to give free health care to people that aren't even citizens. You know, we got millions of people without health care that are citizens, but, you know, fuck them. Fuck them. We're going to give it to illegals. Alyssa Milano saw that. Harris, Warren, Butler, Castro, Booker. The Democratic debate standouts represent the diversity of our beautiful country. Somebody said, this is called superficial diversity. It is interesting psychologically how often many on the left are driven by superficialities that play on emotions rather than objectivity. And I, yeah, I agree. And then you heard Cuomo in there. Well, people pick sides. Yes, the media does pick size, as a study shows NBC serves up left-wing questions for left-wing Democrats. The NBC, MS, Telemundo panel that questioned the first 10 Democrats' 2020 candidates spent most of the Wednesday night's debate queuing up liberal talking points and rarely confronting the contenders with the idea that their hard-edged leftism might drive away middle-of-the-road voters. <clears throat> the analyst finds 39 of the questions of the debate echoed liberal talking points and were framed around a liberal worldview versus only five that challenged them. And they show neutrals were one, two, three, four, eight, 11, 15 neutral questions, five challenge and 39 questions that were just right down the far left fringe of the party. Hollywood debating Dems disappoint. See yourselves out. During the first round of the Democratic presidential debate on the night of June 26, actors, comedians, and singers listened eagerly to the words of the candidates. With the exception of Warren, the candidate were all dismissed by the wealthy elite on the West Coast. Actress and feminist Amber Tamblyn even tweeted, I already heard six candidates tonight that could see themselves out permanently. Liz Winstead, Linda Sossauer, Bill Maher, Bill de Blasio, Michael Moore, Billy Eichner. They just were not impressed with these because they weren't left enough. And the only person that was fact-checked was by CNN, surprisingly. And it was Tim Ryan, claimed that the top 1% controlled 90% of the wealth. This is incorrect. Recent studies show the wealthiest 1% own around 39% of the wealth. But they didn't challenge anybody else, because they, they want them to win. David Brooks, and the Democratic moderators, the Democratic moderates take on progressives. They get squashed by the passionate intensity of the left. If they don't, the party moves so far left that it can't win in the fall. From his article, according to a recent Gallup poll, 35% of Americans call themselves conservative, 35% call themselves moderate, and 26% call themselves liberal. You didn't hear that, did you? That's a change, is it not? The candidates in the debate this week fall mostly within the 26%. The party seems to think it can win without any of the 35% of us in the moderate camp, the ones who actually delivered the 2018 midterm. The progressive narrative is dominated in part because progressives these days have a direct and forceful story to tell and no interest in compromising it. It's dominated... Dominating because no moderate wants to bear the brunt of the progressive fury they oppose. Understand that's social media, the media, everything he's talking about, but he's not going to spell that out because he's a liberal. But the big divide in America is not between the top 1% and the bottom 99, it's between the top 20% and the rest. These are the highly educated Americans who are pulling away from everybody else and who have built zoning restrictions and me- metrocratic barriers to make sure outsiders can't catch up. And that's when I stopped reading the article. Shut the fuck up. He was destroyed by the left. They killed him. I'm not gonna read it. But they're like, this is who America is. They truly believe that. And I'm not going to be a hypocrite and say that conservatives don't say that too. With the Gallup poll, 35% say they're conservative. They say, well, this is what America thinks. And I say it on the show. But when I'm saying it, I'm saying it about abortion and subjects like the border where people are like, hey, this is fucking bullshit. It's not where the left is. So it's actually factual. Factual. CNN Politics Later, Camellia Harris, America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. That statement right there sums up the Democrats. They only talk to their base, and their base is like, I want free. Answers to this tweet were, hey, I put food on my own table. It isn't the politician's job to put food on my table. She isn't a queen or my mother, no matter how much she wants to be. But the media is invested. Nicole Wallace sums up this little segment, because I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, because once again, we're doing quick hit subjects. And we're going to move into the rape now. Yeah, the rape, supposedly, that Trump did. But Nicole Wallace says, this election is about saving the country. And the sad thing about that, that's really what the far, far 26% believe. They believe our country's in peril. And we don't have open borders and free college and free food and free house and free cars and free free. They do believe there's concentration camps on the border. Because they don't want to recognize that Obama's DHS built this shit. In the words of the 2012 campaign, you didn't build that, Trump, is what they should be saying, because Obama built it. But they don't want to recognize that. They have gotten so stuck in their hyperbole, in their loop, that orange man bad, his voters worse, that they believe this is a fight for the soul of the country. It's just not a talking point to get people at the polls. It's what they firmly believe, and she espouses it. So we'll hear her say that, and then we'll go into this faux rape bullshit that's going on that occupied the media for a whole day.
2: I think People you wrote something that changed the equation. I mean, I think what you wrote yesterday about this is who we are, question mark. Well. I mean, the the country and who we are after next election day is on the ballot. And I, I hear you on the policy stuff, but I think this is about more than just connecting and getting the priorities right. I think this is about saving the country. And I don't think well. that's and I think that's where the Democrats have the opportunity to reach across the aisle and grab the attention. We know Donald Trump's going to be watching. Republicans will be watching. And, and I think you put it perfectly in what you wrote yesterday. It's, and I think Joe Biden so far has sort of branded his candidacy, if you will, exactly. with that message. That this is that. about taking a two-by-four to the ugliest aspects of Trumpism, the racism, the misogyny. I mean, the three legs of Donald Trump's stool, the excess Hollywood tape came roaring back into the headlines with another accusation of assault. The Muslim ban was updated with the, the mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the children. Being victimized by his immigration policies. Those aren't mistakes to the policy. That is the that policy. That is the policy. That oh, is the policy those are not to penalize. Bugs, those are features. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, taking the country to the brink of war with Iran. That was, that was, you know, for kicks for the president last week. He was telegraphing the whole thing on Twitter. So this
6: is about big stuff.
7: You don't use the word rape. Right.
6: Sexual violence is in every country, in every strata of, of society. And I just feel that so many women, are undergoing sexual violence. Mine was short. I got out. I'm happy now. I'm uh, moving on. Um, And I think of all the women who are enduring constant sexual violence. So this one instant, this one, what, three minutes in this little dressing room, I just say it's a fight. That way I'm not the victim, right? I'm not the victim.
7: You don't feel like a victim.
6: I was not thrown on the ground and ravished. Which, the word rape carries so many sexual connotations. This was not, this was not sexual. It just, it, it hurt. It just, What. it just, you know. Well,
7: I think most people think of rape as a, I mean, it is a violent assault. It is not I a think sexual.
6: most people think of rape as being sexy. Mm.
7: Let's take a short break. Think of
6: the fantasies.
7: Mm. We're just going to take a quick break. If you can stick around, we'll talk more on the other side.
6: You're fascinating to talk to. <laughs>
3: Will turn out to President Trump and his response to a new allegation from a woman who claims he sexually assaulted her in a department store dressing room 23 years ago. Overnight, the president denied the allegation, saying, "Quote." She's not my type. Our chief national affairs correspondent, Tom Yamas, is here with more. Good morning, Tom.
9: Cecilia, good morning to you. This has turned into an ugly war of words over an incident that L magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll says has haunted her for two decades. The president has said the allegation is made up, citing no known surveillance footage or people who witnessed it. And now going one step further. Overnight. President Trump accusing writer E. Jean Carroll of totally lying after she claimed that he sexually assaulted her in a dressing room in the mid-90s. The president telling the Hill, quote, I'll say it with great respect. Number one, she's not my type. Number two, it never happened. It never happened, okay? Carroll firing back on CNN. I
6: love that. I am so glad I am not his type.
9: In her new book, What Do We Need Men For?, the longtime advice columnist described the alleged assault she says happened around 23 years ago inside of a dressing room at Bergdorf Goodman, writing, Trump was forcing himself on her, adding, it turns into a colossal struggle. I try to stomp his foot. I try to push him off, alleging it didn't stop until she says, I turn, open the door and run out the dressing room. Carol says she never reported the incident to police. But ABC News spoke with two of her friends, who did not want to be named, that back her account, telling us she confided in them after the alleged incident. Trump has faced more than a dozen allegations of sexual misconduct or sexual assault, all of which he has denied. Carol says the president's response to her allegation is similar to that of other accusers.
6: He denies, he turns it around, he threatens any attacks.
9: This is also not the first time the president has commented on his accuser's looks. So the story goes, this Jean Carroll lady comes
4: forward and says that she was raped. But Katie Pavlich sums up the angle I'm going to take on it. CNN Post portion of the interview where E. Carroll says she didn't doesn't consider what happened between her and Trump to be rape or sexual assault. Also didn't post the part where she says, rape is sexy. Rape is sexy. This is just another one of those scrupulous things that people come forward and do 30 years later because some liberal Democrat found them. They told a story about him being aggressive, maybe. He says it never happened. But you can't tell that in the media because they're so craven in the Me Too era for red meat of any sort to get Trump... You get stories like this, New York Times double standard and rape accusation against presidents, overly cautious with Trump. E. Jean Carroll, journalist and current advice columnist for Elle magazine, is out with a memoir, What Do We Need Need Men For? Featuring sexual assault allegations against Trump, Carroll accused Trump of assaulting her in a dressing room in the mid-1990s. In New York, initially, many journalistic outlets held off reporting her claims, (coughs) which caused anger in the left-wing social media circles. On cue, the New York Times executive editor, Dean Banquet, has issued a groveling apology for not giving the thin allegation more intense play and promised to do better, as noted by the paper's Reader Center, writer Laura Takinga, our top editors revisit how we handle E. Carroll. Dean Banquet, Banquet, I think is his name, I've heard it a million times, I can never say it. Our executive editor says we were overly cautious. I'm going to get down to the part. Da, da, da. The reader center took the concerns. It's time. Da, 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 da. We're going into the same shit. When it's not a conservative, they don't even cover it. When it was Biden, the dude from SNL, oh, it, it, we need to check it first. We need to check it first. But now it's, oh, it's rape. It's it's back into the Kavanaugh section. It's rape. Because they're bad people. So you you just have to know that they're bad. So they, of course, did stuff like this. But this is just another memoir book. Somebody writes it, espouses or embellishes a certain event that happened, and calls it rape so they can get their name out there and sell books. And yet, every time this has come out since 2016, 2015, when Trump started talking about running, every one of these cases have been proved to be totally false. Everybody in the Kavanaugh goat fuck were liars. None of it was true. It's all been proven out. People were charged. The media just didn't want to cover it. So, those are our quick hits up front. We're going to fire in effect. And to do that, any NGO, we're going to cover this later in uh, College Crazy, but... Last night, protesters tried to shut down an event at UBC featuring a trans speaker critical of trans ideology. Students and some faculty had demanded the event be canceled. One masked woman was detained and began screaming and crying on camera, and it sounded like this. She ran away and took her ball and went home. Hey, hey, yeah. Oh,
6: assault. You assaulted them. You assaulted them.
0: They just pulled a the firearm. They she just assaulted. She
2: assaulted them. She assaulted
9: she them. She was obstructed
0: with her flag. Yeah. She should be arrested. This is, oh, yes. She should be arrested. <laughs>
4: So in the last podcast, we did a lot of talk about Google and the Project Veritas, and of course, we didn't get the media reaction because it was fresh. So Google execs panic, go into hiding, delete social media accounts after James O'Keefe's latest expose. Whole article on that. They all went underground. But you know what the media did. Brian Seltzer, watching Fox, seeing the talk show promote Project Veritas, I Googled for a reliable news account about what's going on and can't really find one. And everybody goes, oh, wait a minute. You Googled a story that's critical of Google. Do you think you can find it? No, because you can't even find the video anymore because it takes to our next story. YouTube pulls Project Veritas' video on Google bias. They yanked it. They took it down because they don't want it out. And in response to being shown that they are hyper-partisan that they are going to spend the next year figuring out a way to manipulate voters and do way worse than Russia ever did on Facebook, folks, to flex their muscle and the progressive might to push the electorate to whatever the Democrats throw up. Google, YouTube, label Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson Nazis. story goes a little something like this. In a leaked document published on June 25th, an email from Google employee Liam Hopkins described Ben Shapiro, Peterson, and Dennis Prager as Nazis using dog whistles. He suggested that YouTube consider disabling the suggestion feature for these YouTube creators, meaning that their videos would no longer show up in the pl- recommend recommendations on other videos on the platform. Hopkins, a member of Google's Transparency and Ethics Group, also mentioned that he didn't think it was beyond our capabilities to identify far-right content correctly. This is ironic because he labeled three respectable conservatives... As Nazis, YouTube has had a long history of restricting Dennis Prager, Prager U on the platform. Prager U's videos have been demonetized and filtered into safety filters, graphic content. In the past two weeks, the whistleblower website headed by James O'Keefe has come under fire from Twitter, Reddit, and YouTube. Veritas' latest project, which includes several leaks about Google's preparing for the 2020 election, was censored for both Reddit and YouTube in 24 hours after it was released. So let's remember, this started as a lady at a conference saying that Ben Shapiro is a gateway drug and YouTube should not let kids listen to it, but they should be able to listen to the far left stuff. We then reported a New York Times story where we went through the journey of a fucking obsessive compulsive fuckhead that had a history of 22,000 fucking views and he watched stuff like this and ended up being all right, and then he watched the left. And became alt-left, but it's okay to be alt-left, so New York Times doesn't have any problem with it, to now outright censorship of people. A deeper dive of what we found. Whistleblower. Here's how Google functions as a highly biased political machine. On Monday, Veritas released a video report featuring testimony from a whistleblower, blah, blah, blah. Let's get to the point. During an interview with Google Insider, whose identity is kept anonymous throughout the video, Veritas founder James O'Keefe walks through leaked internal documents appearing to show how the search engine manipulates what information users see based on its fair and equitable priorities, which at times filters out or de-emphasizes factual information that its creators deem unfair. A leaked confidential document on algorithmic unfairness Provides an example of what the company's policies and programs are attempting to reduce. <clears throat> I know some of this was in the video, but I want to hit it again for those who didn't hear that podcast. Cause this is, this is what we covered before the 2016. We went through all these studies on how Google knows it can flex six to 10% for elections by the way they do their algorithms. When you do searches, that's why you had George Bush as the stupidest man in the world. You had Nazis are all conservative candidates in California. You you can do searches and see over and over that they push left policies. They say, well, it's just what people search because they search George Bush as the dumbest man in the world. That's why he came up. No, that's not true. We all know that's not true, but that's what they said it was. Uh, Algorithmic unfairness provides an example of what the company's policies and programs are attempting to reduce. For example, imagine that a Google image query for CEOs shows predominantly men. Even if it were a factually accurate representation of the world, it would be algorithmic unfairness. In some cases, it may be appropriate to take no action if the system accurately affects current reality, while in other cases it may be desirable to consider how we might help society reach a more fair and equitable state via product intervention. The leaked document states, O'Keefe demonstrates the fairness at work through Google automated searches. When he types, men can, the search engine fill in, have babies, and get pregnant, have periods, among its top possible results. A search for women can brings up vote, do anything among its top results. We've done this on the show. For those that haven't been here a long time, go back two years, you're going to see all of this. There was full studies by non-conservatives how they shove liberal dictums the religion of progressivism into searches. The insider explains that this is not because people are actually searching for this, just like I just said. Instead, it's a deliberate result of an ideological agenda. They want to act as gatekeepers between the user and the content. They want to access, so they're going to come in and they're going to filter the content. They're going to say, we don't want to give the user access to that information because it's going to create an outcome that's undesirable for us. Among the information being suppressed, the insider told Project Veritas is content produced by Prager University and Dave Ruman. Another leaked document addresses how Google handles news sources, citing its goal of creating a single point of truth across Google products. This means alignment with the narrative, the insider says. The narrative is manufactured by established players. What they are looking to do is boost authoritative content. In connection to this practice, Project Veritas cuts to a clip of the head of the Google's responsible innovation team, which monitors the responsible implementation of AI technologies, telling undercover reporters in a secretly recorded video, we have gotten accusations on around fairness is that we're unfair to conservatives because we're choosing what we define as credible news sources. And those sources don't necessarily overlap with a conservative source, so we're getting accusation of unfair from one side. Asked by O'Keefe, Google has an agenda and makes editorial decisions. The insider says yes, pointing to a leaked internal flowchart, G-Tech manual policies editorial guidelines, that he says shows the company is applying their editorial agenda in determining what information reaches users. If you expand that, you see there's machine learning fairness within these algorithmic checks, he says. In the end, he says they filter out the information that doesn't align with their ideology. Machine learning fairness, Project Veritas reports, is one of the many tools Google uses to promote a political agenda. They're going to redefine a reality based on what they think is fair and based upon what they want and what and is part of their agenda. <clears throat> and they outright say, we are going to stop Trump. I mean, if you own a Google phone, I say it every podcast, I know it's repetitive, you know this is true. You know they force Washington Post and New York Times critical of Trump articles on you like fucking Tic Tacs. Even if you don't want them, they're going to do it. But now they're outright going with the far left, fringe. And saying any conservatives, regardless of who you are, you're a Nazi. If I had a user base that was larger than what it is, because I'm just a Bush League little podcast guy, I would now become a Nazi because I do not believe in 95 pronouns and abortion till birth. I'm critical of Trump on here, but I'm not critical enough. I must hate Orange Man. Orange Man, very bad. Me hate Orange Man. Me hate everybody in the South. Me hate God. Christians are evil. I mean, if you don't espouse all this, you don't get there. And anybody who's ever played the Google game, you know what I'm talking about. You can search and, you know, critical articles of Democrats. You're not going to get it. I've done numerous. Why the left hates Trump. And you're going to get the top results are CNN, Washington Post, New York Times article, How Trump's the Fucking Devil. So Google Insider came in and said, well, this is not true. A on of questions today, clarifying we apply our pol- policies fairly without political bias. All creators are held to the same standard. Prager you. So Google and YouTube admitted it suppresses conservative content from suggested videos. Here's a chart from YouTube suggesting video views. We had about 2 million video views a month. February to April, from suggested videos. In May, we saw 480K. Mark Dice, my views from recommended and up next, after YouTube changed the algorithm, April, to suppress conservative channels. And he shows, automatically, it was left stuff. Now, if you're going in and you're just looking for, you know, Game of Thrones, football, You'll see that it's on the same subject. It, it you know, If I said uh, Game of Thrones inside the episode, season 8, episode 6, which doesn't exist and pisses me off. Well, you're going to get episode 5 or episode 4. If you search um, an old music thing, like the other day I searched uh, Oasis because I woke up with freaking... Uh, one of their songs in my head, and it suggested numerous other Oasis songs. It's what YouTube does. Well, now if you start searching conservative content, you're going to get liberal content for Play Next. And they're going to say they didn't do anything. They're going to say the usual Google two-step, because Google owns YouTube, that that's just what people are searching for, and that's a fucking lie. Facebook, by the way, this week, donated $1 million to Planned Parenthood. So anybody out there who says all this social media is not against conservatives, you are smoking fucking crack. Reddit, which also attacked Project Veritas, shut down a subreddit, The Donald, this week. They took it out and they said that it was horrible. Horrible. So there's your conservative attacks on things. One last thing about Facebook, live-aired video of St. Louis police officer Langford lying on the floor after execution. The suspect struggled with Officer Langford and then shot him at point-blank range in the back of the neck. The bull- bullet traveled through his neck and out his chest. Video surveillance inside the store captured the entire incident. Witness later posted videos of the down officer on YouTube. Officer Langford was executed as he lay down on the floor. Suspect Bonnet Kimbrell Meek stood over Officer Langford and shot him in the back of the neck. It stayed up for a very long time. That would never happen. If it was a liberal, but it's cop. So it goes well beyond politics, my friends. It goes straight into every commandment of the religion of progressivism. These social media outlets are pushing them. Next little thing that happened was Secret Service takes Chicago restaurant employee into custody after she spits on Eric Trump. The U.S. Secret Service took an employee of a Chicago restaurant in custody Tuesday after she spit on Trump's son. It was purely a disgusted act by somebody who clearly has emotional problems, Eric Trump told Breitbart News, because they're the only people that covered it. For a party that preaches tolerance, this, one, this once again demonstrates that they have very little civility when somebody is sick enough to resort to spitting on someone. It just emphasizes a sickness and desperation and the fact that, that we're winning. Mason Steinberg, the Chicago waiter who spit on Eric Trump isn't a guest judge on Top Chef next season. They're doing something wrong. Derek Schwartz, check the Eric Trump tweets to see the full derangement on the left. They're cheering on his assault. Here are some of them. Eric Trump got spit on by a cocktail bar employee in the person's defense. He doesn't have a very spittable face. I'm a parent of three, and I would support them spitting on Eric Trump Sorry, but I'm more concerned about innocent people getting murdered with cars by Nazis and innocent kids getting murdered in school by alt-right gun nuts than Eric Trump, a guy who stole money from the kids with cancer, getting spit on. We went from heckling Eric Trump to spitting on him in two and a half years. Don't tell me progress isn't possible. Remember... We had Democratic politicians telling people to accost people in public. We've had everybody in the Trump administration accosted in public. And it stems from our media who say, well, you know, they're bad people. Remember, the lady that flipped off the motorcade got a guest spot on CNN. She was lauded as a hero, brought on The View. And last podcast, we did a a freaking celebrity reading in the Mueller report. Oh! Other people saw it, and they said, well, damn, I want to be cool, too. So here's Mueller too. According to Comey's account,
0: at one point during the dinner, the president stated,
3: I need loyalty. I
0: expect loyalty.
3: I need loyalty.
0: I expect loyalty.
5: What? <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Could you imagine if this was from the rail report? It is. Really? Seriously? No. No fucking way. That's the real
4: Mueller report. Word for word. Yep. Come on. The
5: president told the FBI director that he
2: needed loyalty? Get the fuck out of
4: here. Personally, I, I literally am making a list of all these fuckheads and I'm making sure that I never go to any of their shows. None of them. Just none of them. Uh, this is, this is to a point that it's just comical. Get over it. There was no Russian collusion, and there was no obstruction that could be persecuted. He did some fucked up shit, but you can't persecute people for being dumbasses. You have to literally obstruct. Had any of the people not done their interviews, you have a case. You don't have a case when they did the right thing, so fucking move on. To uh, a quick little thing on abortion, because it's every week it's here. After public outcry, British appeals court reportedly overruled decision to force disabled women to abort her baby. It took 75,000 people signing a petition over there. And you can say uh, London and England is a little more liberal on these things than we are. But that, that's that's Europe. That's where the left wants to go. Eugenics. I don't want a girl. Fuck that girl. That girl might have a disability. Fuck that girl. They, they're moving into a way, once again, with their, their zeal for climate change, cold, cooling, warming, or whatever the fuck they're calling it this week. That, that's a thing. So we had another Republican Party headquarters vandalized. This is the Michigan Republican Party that for the second time they got anti ice graffiti. The entire media ignored it. Which brings us to Chris Saliza A huge victory for the Republican Party here. Jeffrey Tubman on gerrymandering SCOTUS ruling. As usual, 100% right. Sean Davis. As usual, you're 100% wrong. GOP defendant won in the North Carolina case, but GOP plaintiff lost in the Maryland case. If you had read only to the second sentence of the ruling, you would know this, but he didn't. Jim, <clears throat> if it's this name, once again, let me say, for the billionth time, reporters don't root for a side, period. And they retweeted his 2016 tweet from October because they are rooting. Among rulings announced by the Supreme Court today is one about adding a census question to the U.S. Census. The court has decided for now that it won't happen. The decision blocks the addition of a citizen question for now, but appears to leave open the possibility that the administration could make another attempt and add it. So basically what they've done on the census is they left it to the lower court. They didn't listen. But this shows once again, our media and the left, you know, just gnashing teeth over this court is so conservative and blah, 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 blah. They wouldn't even hear the case. And I guarantee if you did a survey, a census, of the census, excuse me, you would find majority Americans are totally on point that we should have this question on our census. If we're going to have representation of the people, it should be people that are citizens. That's the point. Not... We just bring up, make a sanctuary city, bring in millions of people that aren't citizens, and we get extra representation so that we can rule the country based on ideas that most of the country don't agree with. Unbelievable. Our media is so bad, I wish more people were like this. I found this, and I kind of shoved it in there because I don't have a place for it. Ilian Omar repeatedly refuses to answer questions from the real keen about her brother-husband. And it goes a little thumb like this.
11: Ilhan, if I could get a moment of your time, if I could get a moment of your time, could you tell me why you filed illegal tax returns in 2014 and 2015?
3: And it's which committee? Uh, Can um, you okay, tell me
11: definitively I'm or not, is Ahmad Elsi your brother? For the Yeah. Is he okay. your brother? in the middle of the and legislative briefing. We're going, briefing? To the,
10: yeah. we're going yeah, I, Is he your brother? We're going to which one?
11: It's foreign affairs. I'll go with you. Can you tell me definitively, yes or no, is he your brother? Um, and why can't you answer that question? The remarks you gave really why did you refer to him as your child's uncle on Instagram, and why did you lie on court documents saying that you hadn't seen him since 2011, when in fact him. you'd been talking to him all the time on Instagram? Yes, sir, we're not doing ambush interviews. This isn't an, an ambush. You can send me a, an email. Can find why are you so, so afraid room? to answer these questions? Um, so we have budget sure. How can anyone take you credibly on the uh, on the twi- on the uh, student loan t- tax file when you were cheating on your taxes in 2014? And how can you call for Donald Trump's tax uh, tax filings when you did when you know nobody can trust you on the file at all? And why are you scared to answer the questions? what are you hiding
5: trying to find my phone at the
0: moment
11: so that you can go on instagram and talk to your brother
0: Well, listen, these facilities are designed very purposefully and I can give you some of the language that comes from these facilities, from these lawyers. They say they are military style camps, that these places are designed to mimic prison like conditions. This is a policy of deterrence. This is the administration sending a very clear message that if you come to this country, you are risking your safety not only in the journey, but when you're here in these detention facilities, the conditions are going to be very unpleasant. It is worth probably arguing about for these Democratic candidates, not only what their plan is, but the effectiveness of an administration basically sending a message that the United States is no longer going to be a haven for people around the world, Chris. It doesn't make any sense because it's not supposed to make sense. The administration is intentionally putting people into these situations to send these messages around, not only through the communities, but to the rest of the world. So what do we need at the border? More immigration judges, more doctors, medics, nurses. There is a humanitarian crisis going on. The problem is the money is not being diverted to that issue.
6: Congresswoman, do you you think
7: Planned Parenthood and abortion clinics are like concentration camps for fetuses?
10: Then there's this heart-wrenching photograph that underscores the human toll. A Salvadoran father and his 23-month-old daughter drowned in the Rio Grande while attempting to reach Texas. Joining us now is Maggie Haberman. She is the White House correspondent for The New York Times and a CNN political analyst. We also have Jeffrey Tubin, CNN's chief legal analyst. Let's just start with the picture of the baby, Maggie. Um, I assume that when we hear from the president, he will say something like, This is a tragedy. But we warned people, this is what happens when you risk taking your two-year-old to the United States outside of the legal system. Right. I think you will hear something along those lines. And and I think that it is important to bear in mind that what took place, as we understand it with this case, and the the picture is horrific, is this was a, a family that was part of the metering system that the administration is doing in terms of asylum claims, which is trying to deter legal immigration. We talk a lot about illegal immigration over that border. This is the legal asylum system, which the White House is trying to push back on and and slow down in terms of claims that that people are seeking. This family apparently got frustrated, and the father... They had a two-month wait, I guess, on the other side? At least, and the thing with these metering claims is they're not guaranteed a date. They're not necessarily guaranteed when they're going to have any kind of access or meeting or anything, and so it's not as if they were waiting a day. They were waiting, as you say, for a while. It was blisteringly hot. Um, They they grew frantic it sounds like and tried to you know get across another way um i do think you're going to hear the president say essentially this is not his fault that there has been warning to other people not to do this he is very triggered by images and i think that other people will be very triggered by what is a a, an awful 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 picture uh so it's possible he will have a different response but i think what you just described is certainly what his immediate response he he
7: gets the power of images he gets Mm -hmm. the power of tv and if you look at the past at what has triggered change yep. or movement in this immigration discussion or debate.
4: Yeah, this is our big section today, the AOC. Before we get into drownings and horrible things that the left has no class and use for political points, during the debate, who wants to, of all the people that were being deba- debated, of these Democratic candidates, who wants to give free health care to illegals? The New York Post sums it up perfectly. All major Dem candidates raise hand in favor of free health care for illegal immigrants. Who wants to lose the election? This is their front page. And it just astounds me that you think, with all the problems we have in our country, that you spent from two thousand eight until sixteen crying about with Affordable Care Act and all that bullshit that you think The priority should be to give free health care to people who don't even live here, aren't citizens, do not pay into the system. It's astounding. But that wasn't news. This was. Grim border drowning underlines peril facing many migrants. The man and his 23-month-old daughter lay face down in shallow water along the bank of the Rio Grande. His black shirt... Hiked up to his chest with the girl tucked inside. Her arm was draped around his neck, suggesting she clung to him in her final moments. The searing photograph of a sad discovery of their bodies on Monday, captured by journalist Julia LeDuc and published by Mexican newspaper La Jornada, highlights the peril faced by mostly Central American migrants fleeing violence and poverty and hoping for asylum in the United States. According to D. Luke's reporting for La Jornada, Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez, frustrated because his family from El Salvador was unable to present themselves to U.S. authorities and request asylum, swam across the river on Sunday with his daughter, Valeria. Matt Walsh does a gigantic thing which says, and I'm not going to read it because it's common sense to all of us. We have been talking for a long time. The perils of these immigrants being forced to come north, assisted by Democratic-leaning groups. It's a journey that's very arduous. We've had dead kids because by the time they got here, they were dehydrated, hadn't eaten in days, and died of those causes. And the left played like, oh, no, no, it's you, it's the orange man bad. This is why people say we should have a border policy. This is why we should say... It Unlike the Dems and the media, hey, we're not letting you the fuck in, so stop traveling. This is why 15,000 Mexican soldiers are now on the border for this crisis that the media is calling a crisis. But instead of talking about, hey, we need a comprehensive immigration policy, not open borders, everybody gets free health care and they just get to come in here and the 20 million people estimated that are living in our country illegally and democratic states and cities that are sanctuaries that give them everything, we're just going to make them citizens, the media runs with shit like this, journalists, Julia Buxom Anyone who could look at the picture of that father and daughter who drowned trying to cross the border and not feel anything but sick and heartbroken and compassion for the people fleeing from their lives is a straight-up psychopath. Rashim Kassim, a journalist, just as Curdy who was used to swing public opinion in Europe over a migrant crisis, this picture will now go viral. It's the same playbook as 2015 Europe, but if you engage your brain, not your emotions, those to blame are in order. Mexico gang traffickers, those refusing to build wall, a.k.a. funneling people to legal entry points, open border activists, and parents risking kids' lives. And he's dead right. That's the cause of this, not orange man. That's the cause. You keep saying we're going to open the border. We keep catching and releasing people. They keep coming. The coyotes that used to push fucking drugs are now pushing people because it's more lucrative. Those gangs, they're to blame, not... Donald Trump, CNN. In the photo, the body has a come to rest near a riverbank where five discarded beer cans and an empty soda bottle sit in the tall reeds. Another beer can floats next to the girl's body. Salvadorian officials said the father and daughter drowned on Sunday. Their bodies were found on Monday. Salvadorian Minister of Foreign Affairs Alexandra Hill said the government is working with Mexican authorities to repatriate the remains. She called on those who plan to migrate to the United States illegally to refrain from doing so. Our country's is in mourning again. I beg you to all the family's parents, don't risk it, she said, according to a CNN translation. Life is worth a lot more. Beto O'Rourke. Trump is responsible for these deaths. Everybody said it. And Chuck Schumer went to the floor of the Congress with a gigantic picture of the dead father and daughter and said this.
9: President Trump, I
8: want you to look at this photo. These are not drug dealers or vagrants or criminals. They are people simply fleeing a horrible situation in their home country for a better life.
4: That is beyond the pale. Beyond the pale. This is your policy, Schumer. Nancy Pelosi just said a few minutes ago that crossing the border illegally should not be a crime. But you just cannot say that anybody crumbling across the border is breaking the law, and the left keeps saying it's not for open borders. You've made this the crisis it is. Politically, you've made it. We have proof Beto O'Rourke sent money to these people from his election campaign. But do you hear anybody on the right saying it's your fault? No. But on the floor of the Senate, he blamed Trump for a guy who imperiled his own kids and swam across the goddamn river. Then you have AOC. These are pictures that were from 2008, and they got released now of her standing by the gate, just go around the fence, AOC. Her making faces to the camera. Protest by Annie Leibovitz. She's the one that took the photos. It was staged. There was nothing on the other side. It was an empty parking lot. Article goes, before AOC hit the national stage and was just a fairly unknown House candidate from New York City, she took time away from her campaign and came down to Tornanilo to protest the tent city housing migrant children. I made these previously unfinished photos a year ago today. And then the article devolves. AOC slammed for pushing photos of herself at border to help concentration camp remarks. She pushed it to her followers they're all stage photos. All of it. Tom Elliott. Search Grammy and Photobank have found these alternate angle photos of AOC where her sad face pics were shot. Apparently she was crying about the lack of migrant children for a photo op. More for the photos found by Tom Elliott. And they it's an empty parking lot. There's nothing there. So AOC was really just trying to get some stock border crisis image for Getty. the crying at the border picks were just crying at cars behind a fence it was fake now they have memes all over the inner her at a trump rally her with the indian that cried for the garbage her getting groped by biting because she did one when she held her face oh it's all manufactured all of this is manufactured it always has been manufactured Here's Don Lemon just a year ago saying this crisis is made up by the president and then cooking up some tears and saying it's a real crisis now and people are dying.
8: Here's a really, really disgraceful thing. Okay. You listening? All of this, this whole mess is manufactured. It's a manufactured crisis, a non-crisis at the border. That's really not fooling anybody. And for anybody who doesn't think immigration is a crisis, a deadly serious crisis, a humanitarian crisis, I got to show you this picture. It's a shocking, devastating picture. It's a father and his nearly two-year-old daughter. They drowned at the U.S.-Mexico border. Father and daughter drowned on Sunday as they attempted to cross the Rio Bravo. That is what the immigration crisis looks like. All of this, this whole mess, is manufactured. It's a manufactured crisis. A non-crisis at the border that's really
4: not fooling anybody. And then we had a real journalist for about 2.3 seconds, Jake Tapper, pushed her that why didn't you call them concentration camp camps when obama was doing it
7: you tweeted quote under no circumstances should the house vote for a mcconnell only bill with no negotiation with democrats hell no that's an abdication of power we should refuse to accept they will keep hurting kids if we do those are strong words against speaker pelosi and and that bill as you know passed eighty four to eight in the senate a lot of liberal democrats voted for it explain why you're taking such a strong stance here
12: Because, uh, you know, Jake, this is an issue not just of the substance of the bill, but also the process of how we got here. We passed a House version of this bill, which had far more humanitarian provisions and accountability for the facilities that are abusing kids at our border. And Mitch McConnell immediately smacked it down in order to pass and ram through a Senate bill that has an enormous amount of funding for military, as well as no guardrails and no accountability for facilities that are abusing our kids. So that's the bill that's in front of us here in front of the House. However, we didn't even bother to negotiate. There are House amendments. We could have negotiated it in. We could have conferenced. We could have tried to get amendments in to get humanitarian provisions put in, to get consequences for facilities that abuse kids in. And instead what we're doing is that we're immediately going to just saying yes to what got passed out of the Senate. And these are two completely different dynamics. The Senate, you have a minority Democratic Party there. And here we are the House of Representatives and we are a House majority and we need to act like it.
7: But Congresswoman, didn't you vote against the House version, too?
12: I did. I did. And the reason that I did as well is because I, I understand you had Julian Castro right before. He disagreed with even the House version of the bill, as as do I. I do not believe that we should be throwing more uh, money to ICE. My district is 50 percent immigrant, and I have an, an obligation and a responsibility to protect them. I believe that really what we should ideally be doing is passing a pure humanitarian bill to get money straight to those kids. No tricks, no writers, no poison pills. We need to get Toothpaste, toothbrush, soap, and we need to make sure that these kids are protected as well as having their resources funded. And the fact that this is even a game is, frankly, a a huge, huge disappointment.
7: Well, Well, if you oppose the Senate bill and you also oppose the House bill, I guess I'm wondering what it is that you're willing to support that could pass in either the House or the Senate.
12: Right, and, and once again, I think that a pure humanitarian bill could pass. I do not believe that Republican voters are are interested back home in preventing kids from getting toothbrush, toothbrushes, and toothpaste. Pass just the money for these uh, for for these kids. In addition, if the president wanted to, he could he could declare an emergency right now and get that money to those kids. Because right now, what he's able to do is he's able to put billions of dollars from the Pentagon with funds from getting dispersed in Puerto Rico in order for him to build an, an inanimate wall. But he will not lift a finger in the same capacity in order to get toothpaste to those kids. So, go ahead. so I, I think that what we can do A, there's that provision with the president, but also what we can do is pass a pure humanitarian bill. But you know what? Even if it came down to it, if it came down to brass tacks, and we had to in, negotiate in an imperfect bill with House amendments, that at least is better than the situation that we have right now.
7: But I guess my point is, isn't your desire for your vision of this bill? I mean, there are kids, as you point out, and the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kevin McElhinney, and he's been talking, he's been warning about this for months. It's mm-hmm. going to be overcrowded. We need funding. $3 billion of the $4.6 billion uh, is going to housing for kids, for migrant kids. I think another 800000 or so going to housing for, for other undocumented immigrants, adults. By By opposing both bills, mm-hmm. aren't you just ultimately depriving these kids of housing facilities that they need.
12: Well, when you look at both of how both of these bills happened, uh, Jake, I think it's important that we have members of Congress that stand up and actually call truth to the situation. The House bill passed resoundingly. There were only four Democrats that defected, including myself, from that bill. And the reason I defected is because I needed to send a message to my constituents and my folks back home. And in fact, my constituents asked me to vote no on the bill. But if it ultimately came down to it, if we needed to, if we needed 100 percent every single Democrat to vote on this bill. We could do it with the amendments. But the problem right now and the question at hand right now is that Mitch McConnell sent us a bill and we're just putting a big check mark on it instead of even trying to negotiate. I have indicated that I'm willing to stay here. I don't need to go home on vacation. I don't need to Mm -hmm. go home to July 4th weekend. I will stay here all weekend to make sure that we get this thing done and instead what Mitch McConnell is doing is that he's relying on the time pressure of recess to try to ram through a that is completely irresponsible to the American people and to those kids on the border.
7: I want want to ask you, last night you tweeted, quote, last week we called the concentration camps at the border for what they are. In the week since, the acting director of Customs and Border Patrol resigned. Bank of America announced they will stop financing for-profit immigration detention and private prisons. Words matter, unquote. Um, I guess two questions here. One, you're taking credit for calling these camps, detention centers, You're, you're taking credit for those developments by using the term concentration camp, and two, what do you say to Americans, especially survivors of the Holocaust, or individuals who are related to survivors of the Holocaust, who say, look, academically you're right, the term concentration camp did not necessarily mean death camp, but colloquially, when most people hear it, they think death camp, they think holocaust and you're you're undermining your argument and you're and you're hurting us what mm-hmm. you're hurting our feelings hurting our emotions hurting our memories mm-hmm. what do you say to those holocaust survivors
12: absolutely well you know i have i have many in my district and our our jewish community has kind of has rallied around this issue because uh, when we talk about concentration camps if we do not also talk about japanese internment If we don't talk about the Boer War, if we don't talk about the many times that this has happened in the history of humanity, then we also erase the suffering of those people. I believe that uh, we have also made made sure that we explicitly use the term concentration camp. And we have to learn from the slow process, the slow dehumanizing process that leads to horrible things happening to people. And I know that my folks back home and in my district in Queens and the Bronx, our community has rallied around it. We absolutely and and absolutely have communicated with survivors to indicate that this is not the same thing as as you had mentioned academically as an extermination or a death camp. And in fact, this is an opportunity for us to talk about how we learn from our history in order to prevent it from ever happening in any form, at any step, whether it's a concentration camp or whether it's the the final steps of that phase, from happening and, and... even at the earliest steps, we have to make sure that dehumanizing and that never again means never again for anyone.
7: When you retweeted a story from Esquire magazine discussing all this, talking about the academic definition versus the definition that most people think of, the colloquial definition that doesn't mean uh, the concentration camp or just a concentration of individuals, but a Nazi death camp, Uh, one of the points that was made in that very story was that using that definition... There were also uh, concentration camps under Obama and under Bill Clinton. That is in the story that you retweeted. Mm -hmm. So did you call them concentration camps at the time when Obama was president?
12: Well, at the time I was working in a restaurant, but I I absolutely uh, was outspoken. In, against Obama's immigration policies and the detention of families then. I think it's a remarkably consistent position, and I'm not here to defend uh, wrong actions just because they happened under a Democratic administration. I'm here to speak truth to power, and if it's wrong, it's wrong, and I frankly don't care what president does it.
7: Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from Queens, thank you so much for your time. Always good to see you.
12: Thank you so much.
7: We'll be right
4: back. Because that's the fact, Jack. Jack. Barack Obama's ICE chief, don't blame Trump, cages for illegals were built by Obama. Thomas Homan, Obama's Executive Associate Director of Immigration and Custom Enforcement between 2013 and 17, was responsible for promoting public safety and national security by maintaining direct oversight of critical ICE programs and operations to identify, locate, arrest, detain, and remove illegal aliens from the United States. According to his LinkedIn profile, since January 2017, he has served as acting director for U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement, ICE. He stated on Wednesday, I've been to that facility where they talk about cages. The facility was built under Obama, under Homeland Security's Jay Johnson. I was there because I was there when it was built. According to Holman, speaking at the conference hosted by the Center for Immigration Studies, noted as a Democratic chair who asked Trump official, you still keeping kids in cages? He snapped, I would answer the question. The kids are being housed in the same facilities built under Obama administration. If you want to call them cages, call them cages. But if the left wants to call them cages and the Democrats want to call them cages, then they have to accept the fact that they were built and funded in 2015. Holman said that the border patrol facilities where illegal immigrants were detained were not built to take care of children. It's chain link dividers that keep children separate from unrelated adults. It's about protecting children. In June 2017, as the Washington Examiner pointed out, Holman told a House Appropriations Subcommittee... It isn't the fault of law enforcement that people get separated. It's the fault of the perpetrator. If someone enters this country illegally and knows he is in the country illegally and is found to be in the country illegally, is ordered removed from the country, and chooses to have a child in this country that's a U.S. citizen by virtue of birth, he puts himself in the position. So ICE is not separating the family. Unlike other agencies, we do this despite a constant deluge of biased attack against ICE personnel by those who disagree with the law we enforce. While I recognize that people have the right to protest laws they don't agree with, I want to emphasize to the public and to the media and to this committee that ICE officers don't write the laws. They enforce them. We are all blessed to live in the greatest country on earth, and I can't blame anybody who wants to live here, but we are also a country built on that foundation of the rule of law. Those who choose to enter this country illegally, which is a crime, a federal crime, or to overstay their visa, have knowingly chosen to break the law. It was Obama. The media doesn't want to talk about it. The media wants to play it off. You get brief moments where Tucker, or Tapper will say it, but they they, they want to use this as a political tool. Rosie O'Donnell, there are over 100,000 concentration camps in nearly every state. Man, that's, not true. Anna Navarro I don't know how anyone who descends from immigrants, I don't know how anyone who claims to be Christian, pro-life a parent, I don't know anyone with a heart, can defend denying soap and blankets to kids then you should ask House Democrats how they could possibly vote against funding for employees and resources to care for kids at the border facilities 17 times then the A Hollywood elite wanted to come on down there. Alyssa Milano takes chauffeur-driven Mercedes to detention center, tries to enter. It doesn't work. On Wednesday, actress Alyssa Milano showed up in an immigrant detention center in Florida in her chauffeur-driven Mercedes. I'm Alyssa Milano. I'm an actress, activist, and I would love to be let in based on the community visit. The government agent had a simple response. No. No. As the Daily Mail reported, once back in her car, Milano filmed another video and asked her 3.6 million followers to submit requests asking for her to be allowed in. On Thursday, she urged her fans, "We tried to get in, they wouldn't let us. They gave me a card to email to make a visit request. Maybe we should all email and tell them to let me in because I'm going to go back there tomorrow and try to be let in. They want me to make an appointment to be let back in. Usually, that appointment is set up for two weeks later. Of course, in that two weeks, they have the time to clean up the place. I thought it was." Important, they just let me in. We got to shut down these detention centers. There are thousands of children at Homestead. They had pencils and pens taken away from them because they were cutting themselves. They're not allowed to have any physical contacts with each other, to comfort each other, even their siblings. The 17 year old, once they turn 18, they're put in solitary confinement and then shackled and brought to adult detention centers. There are laws in place that they don't seem to be following. They wouldn't let me in again, so the only glimpse I got of children was over the fence. Please educate and empower yourselves, your voices. We can all make a difference. If you have any of these detention centers in your community, please show up. Ask to go inside. Make sure they know that people are watching and what they're doing and blah, 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 blah. Once you start getting smacked... To those who say, well, they shouldn't have come here illegally, why does this idea of an arbitrary line matter so much to you that you don't care if people are dying when they cross said arbitrary line? Palmer Report, liberal news source. Donald Trump is murdering immigrant children. If you refuse to acknowledge this, go fuck yourself. He then deleted that tweet. This it's just a joke. This whole thing is a joke. AG conservative. There seems to be a lot of confusion about the issue on the border and the actual process. I'm going to try to lay out some of the facts in one thread to make it easy for future reference. The process is much more complicated for children, so that's why I will focus on it. There seems to be a lot of confusion about the issue on the border and the actual process. I'm going to try to, Okay, sorry, future reference. He repeated himself. Out of that number, around 2K are unaccompanied alien children. They're either children that came alone or were separated, as required by law, from other adults, not parents, that brought them across. The law typically requires that those children only be held in these facilities for 72 hours before they are handed over to HHS to be placed with relatives or other suitable arrangements but it allows for exceptions of some circumstances these are the very facilities you have seen reports on in the news and having subpar conditions they have never been set up for long term stays the problem has been that hhs hasn't had the ability to meet that 72 hour window because of the influx of people at the border hhs is also trouble placing kids once they do have them. As a result, kids have been staying at these inadequate CBP facilities for days or weeks longer than they are supposed to. The facilities are way over capacity. The point being is that the system as it is is set up to meet meant to protect kids from spending too much time at such such facilities or even in custody, but a combination of lack of resources and bureaucracy have strained it to the point where the guidelines aren't being followed. The Senate and House are both considering aid bills to help. The House bill focuses on HHS so they can speed up placing kids and picking them up from CBP custody. Senate bill gives more to improve actual CBP facilities. Also worth noting that HHS is tasked with not just handling these kids over to anywhere they can place them, but vetting The places they're sending them. That takes time and resources. They currently lack. AOC and our allies and allies in Congress oppose the aid mentioned. Their only proposed solution at this point is to get rid of the facilities completely. It's not clear what they want done with the 2K kids a day who currently are in CBP custody. I guess just release them anywhere? I should mention specifically that Flores has a bunch of rules as to how children need to be treated in custody, safe and sanitary, adequate food, etc., and how long they can stay in custody, 20 days. Those standards are not being met similar to what we saw during 2014. Crenshaw. 2014, President advocates for enforcing our sovereignty and curbing illegal immigration. 2019, President advocates for enforcing our sovereignty and curbing illegal immigration, but faces endless criticism for it. Securing our border used to be bipartisan. What's changed? Our good intentions have led to flawed immigration policies that encourage migrants to take a dangerous journey and allow human traffickers to thrive. Conditions at the border are unacceptable. People are dying. We have to change this. Our system is bad for everyone involved. Yet, Democrats keep <clears throat> lessening funds, won't pass bills, have done 17 bills and voted them down in the House because they just want open borders. Nothing anybody in America wants. We don't want that. It's a political football This is no different, once again, this photo is the crying girl at the border. It's bullshit. Am I heartless? No. It's sad. But if you choose to take an 18-month-old kid and swim across the Rio Grande, you bought that ticket. We didn't make you buy that ticket. And there are no countries in the world with open borders. It doesn't happen. Everybody has a policy. I go back to when that Marine accidentally was captured in Mexico. None of you cared about him. He was an American citizen. He was held in worse conditions, and it took a very long time to get him back. But you didn't care. That wasn't something you really cared about. The amount of fake, foe, over-the-top theatrics on this goes back to what I say a lot on this show. It's really hard for me to ever look at a Democratic candidate as a serious candidate. They live and die by the m- memes and whims of social media, which promotes shit like this. Because it can help the Democratic Party. Shame on all of them. People are dying. And it takes serious people to fix it. And right now, the progressive side of our country are not serious people. We're not doing a music break today. We're going to do that Finding Forest. It's a little bit long, but we're short on time. You know, or we have a extra time. It's a short podcast. I loved this guy back in the day. This was a UFC-made... Documentary about them. It's a little bit long. Enjoy it. On the other side, news. Social media nuggets.
0: Did
4: you ever
13: hear the story about this?
9: You have just witnessed the greatest action scene
13: inside the
14: octagon in the history of the UFC. Random luck. I appreciate you guys coming out so much. This is the best moment of my life.
13: I've never been good, so I've been pretty lucky.
14: Forrest Griffin is so humble, he'll tell you how lucky he was. Truth is, nobody's lucky. Forrest Griffin is very hardworking, very determined, and those things are what made him who he is and and why he became such a huge superstar and why he's probably the most important figure in the history
13: of the sport. I'm not that interesting. Growing up, it's kind of a loser, not unlike today. But I found that I was really good at sports. I was relatively big and fast and tough. There's
1: going to be a sack by Boris Griffin.
13: You're looking for identity when you're younger. I found mine in sports, and something I genuinely love to do, so let's work on those skills, kiddo. Wow, wow,
1: wow, I get my a
13: headshot without the helmet. And when I worked at something, I got better with it, so I saw improvement, I worked harder. Freshman year of college, I was trying to play football, University of Georgia, and I realized uh, you're in a big pond now, you're a tiny little baby fish. That was, you know, 19, and you're like, well... That identity is gone. And then fortunately for me, I found fighting like a month after. I was in the police academy around the same time. And they had the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu grapple system. The instructor gave me some VHSs of old UFCs and I watched them. So I was like, oh man, this is a sport. These guys are athletes. There's a lot going on here. This is awesome. I want to do this. I was big and strong, and I'd already trained a little in defensive tactics, so somebody was just like, hey, we're gonna you know, beat your ass. I was like, okay, sure, let's see what happens. A now, Griffin, now on
8: top. Nothing to do in that
13: position tap. So I was like, maybe I was meant for
14: this.
4: This new management, Zufa, is now the owner of the UFC.
14: We had bought the UFC, and uh, at that time, Things were not good in the UFC financially. There was a stigma attached to the UFC. And all these people had these misconceptions of what UFC fighters were like. And we knew we had to get on free television to look inside the personalities and the lives of these guys. Then we started pitching The Ultimate Fighter. On this season of The Ultimate Fighter. But when you get on there, you have to have the right people.
13: I'd never seen a reality show before. Was and I said, I think I saw an episode of The Real World. And they were like, perfect. Just like that, but with fighting. It was nothing like that, by the way. Quit my job. I go to the airport. Ended line up. And then in the
14: last minute, I'm like, what have I done here? Why have I done this? Forrest Griffin was supposed to fly out and start filming. He didn't get on his flight.
13: Yeah, I was sitting there at the airport and, you know, stinking on it. I mean, I guess I was afraid to fail. I mean, I didn't want to come out to Vegas, quit my job, and get my ass beat and end up with nothing. You know, 25, 26 years old,
14: it's time to grow up, you know. He started questioning his life and thinking, I think I want to give up this dream, and I want the white picket fence and the house, the steady job. So I called him up and I gave him my pitch, man, on why he needs to get on that plane and and why this is going to change his life and why this is going to be so big. For whatever reason, he believed me and got on that plane and came.
13: I figured this out in life that day, and I'll stick with it now. It's better to regret
14: the things you do in life than the things you don't do in life. Forrest's personality was perfect for the reality show. Very funny, yet a very tough guy who took the sport seriously and worked hard.
13: It was the opportunity to go from having fighting as my passion job and my part-time job while I had other side hustles to making them, you know, my sole endeavor.
1: A knockout ref stoppage, Forrest Griffin. It's been a long, hard road for
14: Forrest. You know, he's been fighting in the smaller shows for years. And now he's in the finals, which means he's one fight away from being in the UFC. He's finally made it to the big time. Oh, Good luck. Sorry, Thanks, sir. So we're going to the finale. We have no deal for a season two. The undercard fights happen, and they're not that great. Co-main event, Diego Sanchez buzz sauce right through Kenny Florian. So we're going into the main event. Forrest Griffin and Stefan Bonner.
8: Come on, let's do it!
14: These two come in and just go to war. Who
9: will become the ultimate fighter? These guys are not leaving
14: anything in the town. Big one! Oh, big right hand! Rocks oh, it's good! Griffin Wow! The crowd starts going crazy inside the arena. They're stomping their feet. It sounded like a train was going through this place. to toe, they go! And the number goes like this. Just takes off during this fight. Both of these guys are giving everything they have. And when has got to be the craziest war I think I've ever seen. Oh, what a what a when the fight's over, everybody's stomping on the ground, everybody's cheering, everybody's chanting one more round, one more round, and they call the fight for. Forrest Griffin wins the fight, and that night I was like, "We did it." When the fight's over, the guys from Spike TV literally went out in the alley and cut a new deal with us for our new TV deal. In that place and at that time, and the way that these two fought, it was the most important fight in the history of the sport.
13: It was only when I started winning and realized that I had a little bit of potential and that I kind of owed it to myself to take it as far as I could. Like, ah shit, man, you know, I could do something with this. Oh wow! Oh, this is Good oh, yeah. 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 Forrest Griffin wins my
14: knockout! Forrest found himself in the UFC. He's so humble. I think when he got in there with Tito Ortiz, he's like, I was watching these guys on TV a year ago. Now I'm fighting them?
9: His confidence, his intensity, his belief within himself started to grow immensely.
14: When he's going into that last round, he gets up and starts screaming. He's like, God damn it, I belong here.
9: And Forrest comes out swinging. Forrest looks much more comfortable on his feet here. If he can land some bombs, he can steal this spot. Forrest Griffin trying to just
1: a reality TV star. What a beautiful Fight! by split decision.
14: Later on in his career, we put him against Shogun. Shogun is a murderer, a killer, an absolute savage from Pride. We line him up with Forrest Griffin, and they're like, "Man, they must not like Forrest anymore." underway. Shogun comes out quickly. At the
13: time, Shogun was by far the best fighter around. But uh, I thought, to an extent, that uh, Shogun was a guy that breaks guys. And my thought process was, he's gonna keep coming and he's gonna keep hitting me, and I'm not really gonna go back. And he'll break himself on me. You know, I'm gonna be the rock that he breaks himself on. Me. Third and final round. You finished the guy that you've seen whoop on a lot of people for a lot of years, so I felt exhilarated. And that's just what we were talking about all along. Forrest,
9: Griffin just needed to believe that he belongs in there with the top fighters in the world. And i said it every time. I ain't that great, but I will fight anybody. You are. Fight brother. I will tell you what, we've waited a long time for this one to finally arrive. Forrest Griffin has grown from his position of the ultimate fighter as a contestant to being a legitimate contender to the title.
13: Every time you want to fight, you get closer to your goal, the belt, a title fight. <laughs>
9: Chris Griffin quitting Rampage Jackson for the UFC Light Heavyweight
14: Championship. When Forrest is going for the title against Rampage, everybody said they're giving Rampage a layup. One of those guys that every time people count him out, he wins. Unbelievable fight!
13: What a fight! Declaring the winner by unanimous decision,
1: and new U.S.A. undisputed world light
9: heavyweight champion.
14: forrest griffin goes in and beats rampage jackson and becomes the world champion this is the best moment of my life i can't wait to do this shit again brother you just couldn't deny that forrest was awesome man it's probably the biggest one of my
13: career it's your goal man it's you know you can die now you have a bit of a legacy you- We're a champion. It's motivational. You got the belt. You're working hard. Hard work seems to be working. Keep doing that.
0: Boris Griffin is
9: a true fan favorite and there aren't many fighters in the game today more popular than the original Ultimate Fighter winner, Boris Griffin.
13: Fighting is a really interesting thing and it is a really hard sport on your ego more than anything else. You know, I had a couple losses where I realized that I was never going back to the top. When an athlete retires, now you've got to transition, and and part of that is finding a new identity. My identity is being
14: an athlete. I would like to say a few words about a gentleman who has meant a great deal to this company. Tonight, we are going to announce his retirement. He will stay with this company, at least for the rest of my life. Thank you guys very much.
13: It's been a good uh, eight years, I guess. I don't know what's next I figure it out, though. Retiring from the sport probably the hardest thing I've ever done. The ride changes you, for better or for worse. It's going to change you, man. You're not going to be who you were when you started. You have to find a way to reinvent yourself.
11: When Forrest first started to work with the UFC, he was very much an ambassador. So in terms of, you know, appearing at corporate partner events or fan events, and that evolved to a point once the PI opened to establish best practices and to help evolve the sport. Forrest, he ended up, you know, really engaging in that process, and his primary role was to serve as a liaison between our staff and the MMA community. How many times is you sparring right now? Wednesdays are
13: my peak day. The UFC has to have somebody in these walls that has been in there knows what's going on i get to bring the sport to a new generation of fighters show them a better way to train and what training can look like
11: you know what he's able to do now is to continue to add to his legacy right i mean he he played such a critical role in growing the sport and now you look 10 years from from this moment and I think he's only adding to his legacy and doing this type of meaningful work. And I think he really values that. And we see
14: it day in and day out. For me, the transition has been pretty good because I was the lucky one, right? Nobody's lucky and nothing lands on your head. Truth is, Forrest Griffin is a very hard worker. He, he He digs in and he grinds and he does a lot of good things for a lot of people. What's crazy is the thing that he thought was an impossible dream ended up becoming his... White picket fence, stability, and everything that he ever wanted. So he got it all. He has a beautiful wife. He has a beautiful daughter. It couldn't have worked out better for him. <laughs> okay, okay, here's uh, I know this one. This one. No, I'm okay. there. No, no. Who's there?
13: And then I, I thought later, you know, what if I didn't go and be on that show? And I'd always think, man, I could have beat those guys. They're not that good, you know. And some you know, some fat cop in Georgia, and they'd be like, "Yeah, no, you couldn't. Shut up. You know, ah, oh, no, I could have. I could have done. It. I was good. Trust me. I could have. I could have been a the
14: In life, there's these paths that you have to choose to walk down. God Forrest Griffin chose that path because it changed the course of history.
13: So much work being me, my God.
6: bubble one podcast at a time here's tony reed and i've been taking care of business
9: every day taking care of business every way i've been taking care of business it's all mine taking care of business and working overtime for you were you trying to get crazy with this see eh? don't you know i'm loco, loco?
6: Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind.
4: Military Corner. Remains of three Marines killed in December, KC-130 crash identified. More than six months after three Marines were killed, when two planes crashed during a refueling exercise off the coast of Japan, the Corps is finally ready to release the Marines' remains to their family. Lieutenant Colonel Kevin R. Herman, 38, Major James Brophy, 36, Staff Sergeant Maximo A. Flores, 27, have been recovered. Sadly also US military says two service member killed in Afghanistan. The U.S. military said two of its service members were killed on Wednesday in Afghanistan but did not offer any details surrounding the circumstances. The killings occurred a day after U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo made a quick visit to Afghan capital Kabul where he said Washington was hopeful of a peace deal before September 1st. It's not clear of the death's result of the war, which at nearly 18 years in America's longest running, more than 2,400 U.S. service personnel have died in Afghanistan since 2001 god be with their families um it's got to be hard then a sad but happy thing i i it's really kind of weird i'm sure it's good for a lot of the families that they're still there or they're still people i'm sure they're still descendants graves of 30 u.s servicemen found on pacific world war ii battlefield A non-profit organization that searches for the remains of U.S. servicemen lost in past conflicts have found what officials believe are the graves of more than 30 Marines and sailors killed in one of the bloodiest battles of World War II. A team working on the remote Pacific atoll of Tarawa found the graves in March, said Mark Noah, president of the History Flight. The remains are believed to belong to Marines and sailors from the 6th Marine Regiment killed during the last night of the three-day battle of Tarawa. The Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency expects to pick up the remains and fly them to Hawaii next month, said Dr. John Byrd. Military forensic anthropologists will then work to identify them using dental records, DNA, and other clues. More than 990 U.S. Marines and 30 U.S. sailors were killed in the 1943 Battle of Tarawa after the U.S. launched an amphibious assault on the small island some 2,300 miles, 3,700 kilometers southwest of Honolulu. Marines and sailors quickly encountered Japanese machine gun fire when their boats got stuck on the reef at low tide. Americans who made it to the beach faced brutal hand-to-hand combat. The U.S. military buried its men in makeshift cemeteries where they fell. But Navy construction battalion sailors removed markers for these graves when they hurriedly built runways and other infrastructure to help U.S. forces push farther towards Japan. History Flights has recovered the remains of 272 individuals from Tarawa since 2015 when it began excavating under a contract with the DOD. Noah said he estimates there are at least another 270 to be found. Tarawa is now part of the Republic of Kiribati. Its government allowed History Flight to demolish an abandoned building in its latest search. Many of the graves were underneath it. A large number of graves also are below the water table, meaning history flight workers must pump water from the site each day to excavate. Byrd said the Army Graves Registration Service excavated some of Tarawa's temporary cemeteries in the late 1940s, but left behind parts of individuals during this process. History Flight is now thoroughly excavating these grave sites, leading them to find some partial remains that have been matched with those already buried at the unknowns. The Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency dug up these remains in 2017 to make an additional identification. The agency has identified more than 100 individuals excavated from Tarawa and the Honolulu Cemetery since 2015. It's amazing. So many years later. If you have the Weather Channel app, you'll also see this week a bomb from World War II in a field in the middle of the night. Literally blew up. Didn't get touched. They've been farming over this land for some time. It just blew up, which is unbelievable if you think about it. The Adi Murphy of his generation. Why David Bolivia's Medal of Honor is making history. This is pretty freaking cool. This will be the first living um, Medal of Honor awarded in these wars, uh, most of them died due to. Um, <clears throat> sorry, my brain locked for a second. Most of these died due to grenades, things like that. They saved a bunch of people, as in the case of um, one of my soldiers. Um, he died jumping on a cluster bomb and uh, saving his mates. He only got the Silver Star. So, as they go through all these awards, they're upgrading. A lot of people. And in this case, this guy is going to get upgraded, and it's an interesting story. Trump presentation of the Medal of Honor to Army Iraq war veteran has reunited discussion in the military community over why it took 16 years to select a living recipient for the nation's highest award. Former Army Staff Sergeant David Bolavia is credited with stepping into a barrage of enemy fire in an enemy-held house in Fallujah in 2004 to suppress the enemy with an M249 squad-automatic weapon, an act that opened an escape window for a squad of pinned-down 1st Infantry Division soldiers. Bolivia, a squad leader with A Company 2nd Battalion 2nd Infantry Regiment, then grabbed an M16A4 rifle, re-entered the darkened house, and killed several enemy fighters, one with a knife during a hand-to-hand struggle. Lavia is the sixth recipient of the Medal of Honor for combat in Iraq, but the first alive. Retired Army Major Drew Dix, president of the Congressional Medal of Honor Society, acknowledged that it's remarkable that there are only one living recipient of this award from Iraq. But he said in many cases, the difference between living and posthumous recipients can be less than an inch. In our world, whether they're living or posthumous, they receive it. Whether you're alive or not, it's just a half an inch from a bullet. <clears throat> he was given Dix, received it in 68. But military historian Doug Sterner said he has been concerned for years by the low numbers of Medal of Honors that have been awarded for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Stirner is a 20-year military historian who created a first-of-its-kind online database of military valor awards. There has been 23 Medals of Honor awarded for heroism in support of the gl- global war on terror- terrorism. Of the 17 Medals of Honor for Actions in Afghanistan, 13 have been awarded to living recipients. They have conducted reviews of other wars and some 100 Medals of Honor awarded in the last 19 years, and only a little over 20 of them went to guys from Iraq and Afghanistan. It seems like we're a little bit better at finding heroes from wars decades past and recognizing the ones right under our noses, he says. Um this is an interesting story. If you want more on this, you can go to Army ArmyMilitary.com uh, or the Army Times. But what this guy did, it's Ani Murphy-like. And I can only speak as I have before. <clears throat> when I try to put a squad leader in for a Silver Star, in the beginning of Afghanistan, we're not giving out Silver Stars. Except to officers. You know, the officers got it. The Tenth Mountain uh, battalion commander got one and the company commander got one, but uh, nobody else got one. And then tank battalions, every tank officer I served with in NTC, all had silver stars for just riding around a tank and blowing shit up. But, you know, we were not going to give out awards in Afghanistan. I went all the way to the brigade commander and fought, but it didn't do any good. Um, it was kind of a preordained thing that we weren't going to make heroes out of people. And I don't know why, because every generation needs their heroes. Um, Not, you know, the everyday American who doesn't give a flying fuck about our soldiers. But within the ranks, you need these heroes. Um, So it's good to see they're doing it. And lastly, a sad story. Arraignment scheduled for soldiers accused of killing an unarmed Afghan national. At Fort Bragg, soldier accused of killing an unarmed Afghan national in 2010 is expected to be formally advised of the charges against him Thursday. Major Matthew Golston will be arraigned in a courtroom on post, according to Lieutenant Colonel Lauren Beimer, a spokesman for the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. A Fourth Judicial Circuit judge is named an arraignment judge and will serve as a trial judge to preside over the case. Weimer said in a written statement released Monday. It'll be interesting how this one works out. I will research more information. This article really didn't give much information. So on to our college crazy. Last uh, podcast, we had a whole bunch of oh, we have problems with mascots. Well, I missed one. UCSC Folds will remove deeply painful bell. A bell. God knows when I walk past a fucking bell, it really harms my soul. UW to pay pregnant women on pot to study effects on unborn babies. That seems like some worthy money. PSU, Portland State University. Yeah, this is right where I used to grow up. Students, faculty reignite nationwide effort to disarm campus police. Gotta read this article. PSU students wanted to disarm campus police, joined a nationwide student movement to ban officers from carrying. Members of the Portland State University Students Union sat on a board of trustee meeting Thursday, urging them to disarm campus police. The controversy comes almost a year after campus police fatally shot 45-year-old Jason Washington after Washington reached for a gun that had fallen from his holster during his attempt to break up a fight. A Multnomah Grand Jury determined the officer did not commit any legal wrongdoing under the law, but Portland State University hired a security firm to study its campus safety policies and recommended changes. The firm, the Margoles Healy, compiled a 209-page report finding that 52% of PSU students and faculty believe campus police should not be allowed to carry a gun. The report criticized PSU's campus safety protocol but ultimately did not recommend disarming the officers. But students who attended Thursday board meeting held signs that read Disarm PSU and Justice for Jason. Police with guns are ticking time bombs, student Olivia Pace said at the meeting and was recorded promptly by the NBC network in Portland, KGW. The PSU administration is putting off a potential decision on the matter until fall 2019. In February 2019, Portland Representative Diego Hernandez introduced a bill that would disarm all campus police officers at both PSU and U of O. The state bill, however, stalled in committee. Sound policy has to come from and center community impacted, Hernandez said. It's time to listen to the students. Yeah. All that will happen will be dead officers. But that's kind of the point for most of these militant PLM people. Then we got the same thing every podcast. Different day. Having one less child, best way to reduce CO2 emission, former professor says. University of Washington. Oh, you guys in Washington and Oregon just... God, what the fuck happened to you? Emirates claimed in mid-June that having a child is worse for carbon emission than taking a plane. Yeah, my little baby farts. I guess baby farts are worse than cow farts? And plane farts. Okay. South Times published professor, and Mem. Mem Mem Meritus. God, I can't speak today. Stephen Warren remarks response to an earlier article about climate change. In terms of carbon emissions that lead to global warming, there's probably nothing worse we can do on an individual basis than take an intercontinental flight. Seattle Times columnist Danny Westport wrote, Actually, there's something worse. Warren responded a letter to the editor, Having a child! By choosing to reproduce, you're responsible for some fraction of the carbon dioxide emissions of your children and grandchildren and all their descendants. This is your carbon legacy. Well, that's a new one. Carbon legacy. I fart more than cows, so I'm assuming I have a huge carbon footprint. My easy chair would probably say yes, and so would my wife. In his letter, Warren suggests that an average child adds the carbon equivalent of 2,700 round-trip flights from Seattle to Europe. You fucking people are insane. But not as insane as this. Nice segue, huh? Pregnant models scorned by baby-hating followers. Many people celebrate pregnancies for obvious reason. Pregnancy means the creation of a new life. But the, uh, for others, pregnancy is treated like a curse, a disease that ruins women's bodies. This prevalent disdain was made especially explicit when Sports Illustrated swimsuit model Samantha Hoops Announced her pregnancy in a Fox News interview, Hoops stated that she was surprised by her followers' disdain, but this pregnancy hate follows naturally from pro-abortion sentiments. On April 9th, the 28-year-old Hoops officially announced her pregnancy with her fiance Salvatore Palella. The Instagram caption partly read: "We are so happy to finally announce baby Palella arriving in August. This journey so far has opened my eyes to how beautiful the woman's body is. It's truly incredible what nature can do. Blah blah blah." Among the many congratulatory responses, the six-time Sports Illustrated model received a shocking amount of hate. According to Hoops, longtime followers were sending her messages where it sounds like I'm dying or something because I'm pregnant. One message partly stated, you're pregnant now and I just want to say goodbye. Goodbye. A month later in response to Pregnancy Hate, Hoops made another Instagram post defending pregnancy. The caption read, Never felt sexier than I do now. Creating a human has been one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. From watching my stomach go from flat to round and cellulite that I never had before, I really could care less because I know that this is the process of becoming a mother. The pro-abortion cause is driven by hatred towards children. They're seen as pests, obstacles to achieving your own selfish desires. That is why they think it's so important for women to have the choice to kill their own born babies. Pro-abortion platitudes have an obvious effect on society's attitudes. Celebrating life cast aspersions on the opposite abortion, a distaste that harms the pro-abortion movement. Hence, pregnancies are to be mourned, not celebrated, the author says. And I agree with them. Greatest thing we ever did we have kids. Sure, my daughter hates me like intermittent months, but the creation of a life was amazing. Laying in bed back in the day on a box spring, it was pretty worn out, so it was like a mattress, on milk crates in a military housing that was way too large for us. Underneath a bunch of blankets with the baby between us and me and the wife looking at the baby and each other was probably the, the highlights of my life. So, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with you people. And if you're measuring children as carbon footprints, you got some serious issues, man. You, you need to fucking lighten up. Yale, in another one of these, convinced her to report him for sexual assault. The school just settled the Q student because it was all fucking bullshit. One a podcast? But I don't have this once a podcast. Substitute teacher fired after allegedly filming porn inside of Texas high school. This is out on the left coast. Substitute. Te- well, it was actually in Texas, but this is some left-wing or just crazy shits. What I'm trying to get out of my mouth. A substitute teacher was fired after she allegedly she allegedly filmed pornography inside a classroom in a high school in Texas. Officials said in a statement, El Campo ISD said there was an improper criminal incident involving the substitute teacher that happened at El Campo High School. There were no students or other staff involved. School district officials told KTRK. That the incident involved the substitute producing porn inside a classroom and workroom in May. The district called that it, received a tip regarding the teacher, and called police to investigate. The teacher's name has not been released. The district has terminated the substitute employment and is seeking legal advice. The district continues to hold safety and well being of our students and staff as a top priority, and filming porno is probably not the best deal. I did extensive research on this one. I cannot find who the person was, but I'll keep looking for it because that's some funny-ass shit, man. Next one, uh, this is the right down the student aisle. I just don't get it. Mike Drucker. But how should I feel? I've already paid off my student loan debt. I don't know. Maybe feel good that things will be easier for everyone after you. Are you also mad that you spent 3000 on a gateway computer in 1988 and now everything is cheaper and faster? Grow the fuck up. Because that was huge this week. That's why I put this tweet in here. I couldn't remember why I did, but now I remember about this free student shit. Free, 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 free. That guy's right. I mean, for Christ's sake, my first Dell computer was $4,000. My phone has more RAM than it had. I don't ask for money back. Grow up. This one, I would say I was surprised by it, but, you know, what the fuck? It's 2019. Critics slam Toy Story 4 for sexism, disabledism, and having no black leads. Because we don't have any black toys. It's toys. It's a fucking cartoon. Yeah, it's a real thing. In an interview with BBC, the Daily Mail reports Duffy slammed the already beloved Pixar film calling herself the Grinch that hated the movie and calling the film as an example of how sexism, racism, and ableism permeates a movie-making industry. She was especially concerned that the movie featured no black leads and that the character Bo Peep, a Bo Peep doll that has appeared in all three previous Toy Story installments, is anti-feminist. Yeah, anti-feminist. Thus setting a poor role model for young female fans in the franchise. Seriously, it's 2019. What on earth are Disney doing to having a film that has no leads that are black characters? Duffy complained. There are characters of color, but the colors are blue and yellow. A pair of plush toys, a rabbit and a chick, voiced by Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele. But there's not the right color, according to Duffy. Yes, there are black actors, but they are yellow and they are green and they are plush. How can they possibly think that it's all right now, she whined at the BBC host. How can they possibly think that it's all right now? Yeah, maybe in 1995, which was also wrong then... As well, actually, but now, to be serious, where every single humanoid toy is white. It's just shocking. Just shocking, she says. I searched for the video because I wanted to play it. I just can't find it. As if that wasn't enough, Duffy was triggered by Bo Peep, who may have repaired recently be having swapped her dress for a more modern pantsuit, but was still one half of a toy center love story and not an independent female character who doesn't need love to survive and succeed. Okay, let's talk about white feminism on display here. Oh, look, Bo Peep's a feminist. No, she's not. She's still going to fall in love. She's going to have the happily ever after that's not feminism. It's a woman who kicks off her skirt to reveal bloomers, had a couple of thoughts, and does some higher wire acts. She also said the movie was disabled, but didn't elaborate on precisely what that means or whether she actually meant ableist, which is a typical social justice complaint. Unlike fans of other films, though, fans of Toy Stories weren't about to let Duffy ruin the precious Pixar franchise. A number of social media respondents accused Duffy of looking for publicity, but being the single negative review in a sea of positive reviews, great publicity giving a negative review on a well-made film and making points about racism and misogyny writing where it's really not needed. But at least everyone knows your name now, which is exactly what you wanted. One Twitter user complained. Others suggested that Bo Peep at least deserved a fair shake. Are you saying anti-feminism fall in love? One Twitter user charged. No, Duffy replied. Rather, what they're touting is a feminist film, but the minute Woody appears in her sights, her story trajectory is obvious and the formation of the couple is assured. For the record, Woody and Bo Peep have been in an unofficial pair since Story Story's first installment. Ultimately, Duffy couldn't overcome at least one complaint. The movie's about fucking toys. What the fuck is wrong, man? I know I, I freak out about these because we have one about every three months, but it's a movie about toys. Toys. If you had a complaint, it's, it's about a spork. And they're selling, literally for $15, forks your kid can fucking decorate with googly eyes. That's my problem with the film. And parents who buy that shit need to be punched in the melon. Go get a plastic spoon for a buck. Get a whole pack of them. Don't waste your money on that. Outrageous. Here's what happened to students who told his teacher there are only two genders. 17 year old Scottish teen was kicked out of the class and subsequently suspended for three weeks from his Aberdeenshire area school after he had the audacity to push back on teachers' opinion on gender. When the teacher allegedly told the class that a website was old-fashioned for having only two gender options available, the teen spoke up to tell him that, biologically speaking, there are only two genders, male and female. Anything else is a personal identification. That was enough to get the student booted from the class And a now viral exchange, was secretly taped by the student. It's a low quality, so I'm not playing it. The teacher rehashed the issue with the teen in a classroom alone, chastising the boy and telling him he needs to keep his opinions in his own home. The teen has remained anonymous, a report from the Daily Mail said, but according to his friends who spoke out to the outlet, he taped the exchange with the teacher to expose the dangerous ideology being spouted to students as truth. He decided to film the teacher because he wanted to show what was going on in schools today for simply stating there are only two genders. One friend of the student said, he has nothing against anyone who identifies as LGBTQ EIEIO, but completely disagrees that there are more than two genders and that it's a social construct. The team believes telling kids that boys and girls and girls are boys is a very dangerous thing and wanted to get his view across the teacher. His view that scientifically there are only two genders. This new gender theory that there are unlimited genders is something the school should be discussed and debated, not just thrown into classroom discussion. If you disagree, you get kicked out of the room. The video of the exchange begins with the teacher telling the student he is entitled to his opinion. If I am, then why did you kick me out of the class? That's not very inclusive. I'm sorry, but what you were saying wasn't very inclusive, and this is an inclusive school, the teacher replied, adding that his opinion is that there are more than two genders and that there's an opinion which is acceptable in the school, what you're saying, he told the student, that there is no such thing as anything other than male and female is not acceptable. The student explained that people may wish to identify as anything they choose, but biologically speaking, there's only two genders. Choose you to make an issue of this when he said that the opportunity to keep quiet. Yeah, I think it's silly to have anything other than two genders. The student said, raising his voice. The teacher told him, "Could you please, could you please keep that opinion to your own house, not in the school? Thank you." Mm-hmm. So you get to put your own opinion out in class. The teen started asking, "I'm stating what is national school authority police o- policy." Okay, I'm not putting my opinion out. The teacher responded. The authority points point of view is very clear. He added, "But for accusing the student of discrimination." discrimination yeah okay that's discrimination having an opinion is discrimination the reality this is probably already happening to kids in america we just don't know about people aren't reporting it but i'm sure you can't pipe up with an opinion just because you feel like it to our soundbite in the beginning Transgender speaking against teaching kids gender identity triggers alleged Antifa member to go crazy. During a speech at the University of British Columbia by Jen Smith, who's a transgender but opposes teaching children about sexual orientation and gender identity, an alleged member of Antifa went crazy, rushing out, striking an innocent bystander, and ending up being detained by police while screaming hysterically. Smith was speaking on how transgender politics in school <clears throat> and society is undermining our freedom and harming women and children, as protesters were outside. A fire alarm sounded as it rang out. The Antifa member bolted out of her seat up the stairs, Smith said of the alleged Antifa member. I think the original attempt was to go after me, but she got spooked by the RCMP near me and instead charged out of the building and flailed at the man at the back. This is a pattern of harassment. When I did my Vancouver Island tour, had a group of apparently professional protesters following me from town to town, causing disruptions. That's a transgender person saying facts. This is very harmful. For those who disagree or for new to the podcast, just search back through the, the library. You'll find graphic evidence, studies. This is harming children. Because you're forcing them at the ages of four to buy into your political bullshit. Then we got more Handmaids. By the way, we finished episode five the other day. This was the big one where they were at the Capitol and every liberal in Washington lost their ever-loving fucking mind because it's so apropos with Trump society. I saw Handmaids and I just can't and all that shit. What a weak episode. They showed the... Uh, spoiler alert, they showed freaking Lincoln's head ripped off and all his speech smashed and it's still the same thing. Just her face. And then because they don't have an much outrage because they're not doing any birthing ceremonies anymore or mating ceremonies, they now upgraded in in, uh, Washington. They wear these red face masks that make them silent with clicks and clacks and metal straps and just overdoing it, but it's just not that good. But Handmade Tale, Christians deface monuments, silence women and emulate Nazi rallies. <clears throat> this is about this episode. Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale has now gone so far left that it's hard to make any sense of it anymore. True. I don't know where we're going. This season's appeals to fake refugees, child-molesting priests. Narratives were already bad enough, but the latest episode takes things to a new level with more bizarre anti-Christian sentiments, including a Nazi parallel. I guess nothing's too outrageous so long as it insults a massive religion. The June 26th episode, Households, follows the aftermath of Jude Elizabeth Moss helping her infant daughter escape to Canada Out of Gilead, because of the scandal, Commander Fred and his wife Serena travel to Washington, D.C. to make an appeal to have the child return. Taking June with them, this gives the audience the first view of D.C. under religious totalitarianism. And There's a site that is, for starters, iconic D.C. monuments are defaced or reformed to this fascist nation. The Lincoln Memorial is literally beheaded with his dedicated smash from all to see. Apparently the fact that the earliest abolitionists were Christians doesn't register in these writers' logic. Or the fact that Abraham Lincoln was a notable Republican. Also as seen by the above image, the Washington Monument has been transformed into a giant cross. For the record, I have heard of the many rogue Christian-destroying non-religious structures in America, but I have seen several examples in reverse. In fact, the leading group behind statue removal, the ACLU, is hardly Christian at all. Another shocking revelation comes from the dc handmaids when june interacts with one she's shocked to discover that her lips have been surgically sealed with mouth rings to keep her silenced i gotta admit when i saw that i thought there's a lot of liberals that need that they need to be silenced for a while maybe we should do that i'm just just shut up for a while get a grip on reality and then come back to the real world <clears throat> we must presume that all of the DC handmaids have the same affliction since every woman in red wears a large scarf covering their mouth. The writers desperately need to explain exactly how this horrifying image connects to everyday Christians. I know it's repetition at this point, but there is a religion that has extreme violently silenced women. I'm going to click on this just for shits and giggles, folks, because you know what I say every time we cover the handmaids. This is in play, has always been in play in Islam, but they went back and found certain little nooks and crannies hold on a second yes, I want to continue let me pause for a second, I'm having computer issues, so the link that took forever to open new video shows Muslim women beaten publicly women's march is silent and this just recently happened in a public square. There is a thing called a burqa. Yeah, we have those all over the Middle East, and we have hijabs, and we have gays being thrown off roofs, not just uh, thrown into work camps, as in handmaids. And once again, they found fringe incidents, this author did, of Christians doing something ages ago, and that's what they ran with when all they had to do is go to modern day 2019. Middle East, and they would find all of this. I mean, all of this. Women are baby machines in Afghanistan under their burqa. And they fuck little boys for pleasure. They, they're just there to make babies. That's a fact, as the bombas say. Anyway. Finally, we end the episode with a citywide prayer for the baby's return. We witness a massive crowd of silence handmaids gathered to listen to the Commander Waterford as he receives Psalms 12735, yet another instance of showing using Scripture to justify the actions of its villains. Coupled with a large white cross, the background, the scene is clearly supposed to resemble that of a Nazi rally. The outrage usurping of the monuments, twisting of Scripture and subjugation of women is just a bonus. Waterford, Lord above, we beseech you hear our prayer, hear our prayer, children are our heritage from the Lord, offspring, are ward. For him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, or children born in one's youth, blessed is the man whose quivers full of them, they will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies, hear our prayer, it's no secret this show doesn't like Christians, but now it's resorting to ridiculous fear-mongering against the religion, Washington D.C. is enough of a mess without this nonsense. Oh Tony, it's just a TV show, hell sounds nice, lefty twitter damns basic Christian beliefs, Radical libs are particularly ignorant of Christianity, but this comes to no surprise no one. And we've had like four uh, Hollywoodites use scripture lately to bash people. To publicize how little they know about the Bible and its contents, Georgia Takaki's website published an article yesterday about a tweet from a Christian girl's account. The tweet explains that there are some things like masturbation and adultery that are sins according to traditional Christianity. The responses to the tweet were horrendously vile. The tweet was posted by Christian Hodge, a 23 year old girl with barely 6,000 followers. Hodge was swamped by a mob of Twitter verified accounts, a her account, followers count by a hundredfold. Hodge's tweet read, You can't. Be a Christian and think these are okay and or are not sins. Being LGBT, sex before marriage, being lustful, masturbation, getting drunk, high, cheating, lying, cursing, quick to anger. People, come on. God loves everyone, but not everyone will go to heaven. Ko Mazaki, the author of the georgetakaki.com article, was let to gasp by this list. Mazaki derided Hodge's Christian belief as outdated views on religion and praised the many sects of Christianity that embrace gayness. Mizaki asserted that Hodge's tweet has nothing to do with the teachings found in the New Testament. Au contraire. Here are a few, and they list them all. Despite the many times immorality is mentioned in the Bible, liberals on Twitter were shocked that Christians believe in sins. Potty mouth Tony Polinsky was especially offended by St. Paul's condemnation of profanity. For every five words of Polinsky's reply, one was a curse word. Polinsky politely asked Hodge to eat shit for disrespecting the LGBT community, and promises followers a round of drinks in hell. Fuck if fucking swearing and jacking off are fucking going to get me to hell, then fucking hell it is. Also, don't go fuck yourself because that's a sin, but eat shit for disrespecting the LGBTQ community. I'm buying drinks in hell, motherfuckers. Who's coming with me? Blue-checked Associated Professor Eric Sprenkel regularly rails on Christianity for its stance against sexual immorality. According to Sprankle's pinned tweet, if your religion left you feeling ashamed of your sexuality, it's time to find a new religion. Sprankle predictably took issue with the Bible's opposition against masturbation, tweeting, if masturbation doesn't exist in heaven, it isn't really paradise. Many of these resentful tweeters stated that they preferred to go to hell anyway. One video game developer tweeted, Hell sounds nice. All the cool kids in one big-ass melting pot. If it weren't real, I'd rather go there. Uh, If it were real. If hell exists, I bet it's a party. The disdain for basic Christian beliefs speaks for itself. Oh, Tony, that's just some people on the left. GoFundMe dePlatform's Christian athlete fans back him with 1.5 million. In the U.S.-based crowdfunding website GoFundMe booted Australian athlete Israel Folula, critics had no idea it would be the best thing they could do for him. Falula is a popular national figure both as an athlete and an outspoken Christian. He was fired from his profession and deplatformed when he used GoFundMe to rally funds for a legal case to take his job back. Christians, Australians, however, have rallied around him in a huge way. The Australian Christian Lobby, ACL, says that Falloula's deplatforming galvanized his support base and recruited many more to his side. A far more intense and generous flow of donations went to flula He got a shitload of money, and good for him. They hate Christians. They ignore Islam. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Just what they do. U.S. women's soccer star Megan Rapone says, not going to the fucking White House. During an interview with 8x8 magazine on Tuesday, Megan Rapone scoffed at a question about whether she's excited about going to the White House. I'm not going to the fucking White House. No, I'm not going to the White House. We're not going to be invited. I doubt it. Then we got U.S. women's soccer members. Tell fans, employers, you're living under a rock if you don't know our game is important. The Daily Mail reported Kelly O'Hara and Ali Long posted the excuse note on Instagram starting by insulting telling the employers that they were living under a rock if they weren't aware of the importance of the women's soccer team. Dear bosses and supervisors, in case you're living under a rock, this Friday, June 28th, is our World Cup quarterfinal versus France, and it's going to be a big one. We kindly ask that you give every employee the day off so they can eat a hearty lunch, get emotionally ready, bust out all their USA gear, and mainly prep for what it will be an epic game. They will be back on Monday, maybe. The Daily Wire reported the women on the soccer team determined to score as many goals as they could because the number of goals scored has an effect on the World Cup chances. Celebrated widely even after the disparity in the score were ballooning and the tie team was in tears. That precipitated an uproar among the, some who witnessed the game. As the Daily Mail reported, former Canadian team player and current TSN analyst, analyst, Kaylin Kyle commented on the TSN broadcast, As a Canadian, we would just never ever think of doing something like that. For me, it's disrespectful, it's disgraceful. Former Canadian player Claire Rustad echoed on the broadcast, I just think they could have won with some humility and grace, and they just could have managed to do that celebrating goals later in the game like this is just completely unnecessary what is this Kyle added they're the number one team in the world and for me I'm disgusted honestly it looks like karma got them a little bit because they barely beat France 2-1 to one. so I- I'm gonna tell you right now uh, uh, this is the first time I don't do soccer but I root for American teams. I'm finding it hard to root for the women's soccer team. They're pushing LGBT shit. They want to be non-gendered. This, tell tell all the employers to get people up. I mean, what the fuck, man? If you want to live like that, go to Europe. Okay, that's not America. San Francisco's not America either. It becomes the first city to officially ban e-cigarettes. Yeah, because e-cigarettes are bad or something. Simultaneously... Conditions on the street of San Francisco are comparable to the slums of Mumbai, Delhi, Mexico City, Jakarta, and Manila. Manila. Let's try that, not Malilla, which isn't a word. So, yeah, we got our priorities in San Francisco. Let's worry about e-cigarettes, not the 100,000 homeless motherfuckers. To our crazy, crazy this time. This is just so fucking crazy. Crime stuff, or weird stories, really. Man lives after bear breaks his spine and keeps him as food inside his dead. I just want to say that again. Man lives after bear breaks his spine and keeps him as food inside a dead. That is worse than hostile, part 1, 2, 3, 4. I mean, God. Alexander, described as a speaking mummy found by hunting dogs close to death after a month, the emancipated man from Russia, a remote public Tuva, was preserved as tin can food to eat later by a brown bear, says local report in the region. A group of local hunters found Alexander after their dogs refused to leave the area of the den. The persistent barking pushed the hunters to check inside the lair where they found a barely alive man. He was rushed to the local hospital has been diagnosed with a broken spine and severe emanciation. Alexander remembers his first name but not his age and was reportedly in the den for around one month. Drinking urine to survive. He's now in an ICU with multiple injuries and rotting skin. Alexander opening his blue eyes and confirming his first name. It is yet unclear if he was a hunter, too, and how his encounter with the bear happened. He managed to explain that he was attacked and dragged inside the den when he broke his spine. The attack happened approximately a month ago. The bear preserved me as food for later, he explained. A video filmed inside the local hospital shows the man turned into speaking mummy with his tissue rotting. Local medics say they cannot explain how the man survived with his injuries and for a month. Sweet God. And last but not least, Kentucky residents could soon carry a concealed weapon without a permit. Todd In Oregon, if you're listening, I don't think you listen to the podcast, but that's why I live here, buddy. Beginning Thursday, June 27th, anyone who can can legally possess a gun in Kentucky will be able to carry it concealed without a permit. Senate Bill 150 was signed into law on March 11th and takes effect this Thursday. It essentially eliminates the gun safety training course, background check, and $60 application fee previously required by Kentucky. Can carry it around under a coat, in a purse, or hidden in a hip holster. No permit is required. The concealed carry commonly applies... to carrying a weapon under a coat or article clothing, a purse, or hidden in a hip holster. The new bill also removes an exclusion that prevented Kentuckians from getting a concealed carry permit if they own more than a year of of child support. In addition, it removes exclusions for those with misdemeanor, alcohol, or drug convictions within three years. Kentucky joins 14 other states to have passed similar laws eliminating the need for a concealed carry permit. The law doesn't change who is eligible to carry Per Kentucky law, concealed weapons still won't be allowed in courthouses, prisons, sheriff's office, jails, prisons, and anywhere where they serve alcohol. I like it. To our lighter fare, we're going to do a soundbite tweeted by Trump, and it brings us into some funny shit about the Dem debate.
7: Senator Warren, I want to start with you. We are less
8: than 50 miles
7: from Parkland, Florida, where 17 people were killed in a school show. Someone's got my <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? We
8: are, we are gonna take a quick break. We're gonna get this technical I, I... Uh, situation.
3: What's happening?
9: We are hearing our colleagues on it's you a know, We prepared for everything. Guess what
6: guys?
7: We are gonna take a quick break. We're gonna get this technical uh situation fixed. We'll be right back.
6: Donald Trump, Donald Trump, the mess in the White House. Donald Trump's Trump.
4: Trump,
11: he who will not be mentioned. They didn't talk about Donald Trump very much. Beat Trump? Beat Trump.
2: Who could beat Trump?
11: The Republican president. The use of the word Trump after Trump. After Trump, Donald Trump. No one's flying
2: private except... Donald Trump. Donald Trump's name. Trump's Trump's doorstep. Trump's position. Uh, You know, Donald Trump. Voted for Donald Trump. Healed the wound
13: by getting rid of Donald,
11: you know. Trump.
2: Donald Trump says Donald Trump tweets with his little thumbs. Donald Trump
11: is Donald Trump.
2: The anti-Trump. The pres. Trump's name didn't mention Donald Trump. Invoked Donald Trump.
7: Lord Voldemort. Hey, we can actually beat Trump. Trump in the room. On stage
4: with Donald Trump to beat this president. (laughs) Donald Trump. (laughs) Donald Trump. End of Donald Trump. You've got to get rid of Donald Trump. Trump wasn't there. Oh. Well, he wasn't the first to mention Donald Trump. It was his mention of Trump. Think of Trump. The referendum on Trump.
2: The Referendum By on Trump. you calm down, him. it will be okay. The ethics
1: of Donald Trump. Trump is the enemy. Take it to Trump. I, I, Trump. This is Trump's fault.
4: They sure were on NBC, Trumpy, Trumpy, Trumpy. And then of course, he dogged Meadow and uh, Chuck Toad. Jason Harrington Uh, This was pretty good. Isn't really being funny with his tweet quoting the candidates arguing on stage. Talk about an embarrassing mess to pandering, whining, crazy amount of virtue signaling. His tweets, Beto, I speak Spanish. Booker, I can't believe you did my thing before me. De Blasio, I have a black son. Booker, I'm actually black, Bill. Klobuchar, um, I have an uncle with a deer stand. Warren, don't say it, don't say it. Oh, y'all thought I would just make it a meme. Here it is, glorious video form. This real life meme struck a chord with people on the left and right. There might be hope for us yet. At least we all agree America is better than this. Another one. <clears throat> Check out the similar similarities between some of the twenty twenty Kim Dem candidates at last night's debate in Miami resembling characters in the nineteen hit film Airplane. Johnny Delaney is Johnny the Crazy Dude. The one that just says weird shit. Uh, Beto O'Rourke as Ted Stryker. (laughs) Bill de Blasio as Otto. Jay Inslee as Dr. Rumak. That's the guy from 33 and a third. NBC's Savannah Guthrie as Miss Hammond, the lady who gets smacked. Cory Booker as Roger Murdoch, Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Tim Ryan as Joey, the little boy. Elizabeth Warren as the jab lady. And Rachel Maddow as Elaine Dickinson, which I thought was really funny. And then, of course, Trump sent out that tweet with the real professionals. And then he sent out the tweet with uh, them saying his name a million times. And he said, thank you for the in-kind donation. I don't follow Trump, but that one was all over the, you know, Internet. So I grabbed it. We don't have a soundbite for this is our this is America section or this is America section. I don't know why I said it that way. But I have an article, and I just love the bumper, so I'm going to play it. This is America. Don't catch your slipping
8: now. Don't catch your slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch your slipping now. Don't catch your slipping now.
13: It's time for the last soundbite. Like the
9: media say when they
11: are pushing fake, liberal
9: agenda stories.
5: And this is America in
4: 2019. Once again, for those new to the show, This is America's the worst soundbite I heard from the week where I'm mocking CNN's Brooke Baldwin for saying And this is America 2019 on a faux story that was fake. This one's an article, New York Mag, The Cut, writer describes her best abortion ever. How heartbreaking sad is it that when you have so many abortions you can rank them and decide which one was your best? In New York Magazine's The Cut on June 19th, Sarah Miller wrote about the four abortions she's had and which was her best abortion ever. It's called fucking birth control. The article is brutally honest to the point of being cavalier about abortion. There was absolutely no discussion of if she was using birth control how she found herself pregnant four times in 16 years when she knew she didn't want to be a mother. Miller's first abortion was in the early 90s when she was 24. She described a terrible experience afterwards, clutching my abdomen in pain. She didn't say when her next abortion was, just that it wasn't as bad, but she still felt like shit and bled and bled and bled for days. 2011, for her third abortion, Miller took the abortion pill, which she described, covered all the bases of physical misery. I bled, I was nauseous, I had cramps, I could not get comfortable. Couldn't read, couldn't watch TV, couldn't even thrash around and fail to imagine ever feeling better. After the terrible experience with RU486, she found herself pregnant again for the fourth time in her life and the second time that year and decided on a surgical aspiration, abortion. Miller was going to go under general anesthesia, but the abortion facility receptionist assured her, we've gotten way better at abortions. The woman who worked on Tuesday is amazing. When Miller agreed, the woman got downright creepy. She looked so happy, she actually said yay, and she tapped my file on the counter. This woman is seriously just so incredible on abortion, she said. I think you're really, really going to like it. Really going to like her incredible abortion. For her final and best abortion, Miller described it as like the worst cramp ever. Times three, but not worse than holy shit, she said to the abortionist. That was my hands down best abortion I ever had in my whole fucking life. You're amazing. But hidden behind the nonchalant attitude of expletive latent enthusiasm for abortion is a lot of pain and brokenness. Before her last abortion, Miller talked about how she started to cry, thinking about how she was over 40, underemployed with a partner, partner who didn't care, and knowing the relationship was over. She was even considering having the baby. Maybe it could be my last chance of having someone love me. Miller had all the same problems as before the abortion, but she felt an immediate rush after, I'm not a failure, I thought, I have a pretty good car stereo, and I'm not pregnant, and I'm not having cramps, and there is no blood in my underwear, not, to, not a speck. I felt like the most successful, luckiest person alive. No doubt this was a temporary high. If abortion had the ability to change and improve life for better and solve a person's problems, she wouldn't find herself repeatedly getting one. I hope someday Sarah Miller, and anyone post-abortive reading this, finds the hope and healing she so desperately Needs. I understand abortions, back alley abortions, and things of the sort. Back in the day, <clears throat> when you know, birth control or, or you know, birth control pills were new. For a long time, they were only issued to married couples, which was silly. And times changed. But in a world where we sander a fluke to get a president elected and we have free birth control, I don't understand how somebody has four abortions unless you're just an irresponsible person. And you don't value human life because you don't even value your own life, to be quite honest. And to write an article and shout your abortion... Those are just horrible people. The abortion is a byproduct of a really shitty life. You've been hurt by other people, so your reaction is not to find better people. Just stay in the cesspool of shitheads you're with and hate everybody who doesn't think like you. And I think it's a great example of what liberals are. Self-centered, selfish, And they hate everybody else who doesn't think like them. I know a lot of people don't think like me. I know a lot of people don't share the same beliefs, desires, thoughts. As I say, to simple it down to the lowest common denominator, they don't like brisket and they don't root for the Green Bay Packers. But I don't hate on those people. It's a big world. Everybody's different. Everybody strives for other things. But these people can't be like that. They fix their pain, their hurt, their emptiness by lashing out at everybody else irrationally and being general shitheads. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share this with family and friends. Send comments about the track by emailing F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Fop podcast gmail.com. You can do suggestions there, folks. You want to hear something? A certain subject, sling it my way. Get this show on SoundCloud, Podcast Attic, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, which you'll never find, iTunes, you're not gonna find, Blueberry and Stitcher. Because Google Play and iTunes are suppressing all conservative Nazis like me. Remember to check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and our Twitter page at FOP Tony Reid. Our next podcast, I have Buku Wife Appointments. So we're looking at, um, I'm going to try to do July 4th. That'll give us enough time to get some stuff going. So we're going to go July 4th and July 7th. Uh, another Sunday podcast that was supposed to be today, but, you know, I had enough stuff, I kind of knocked it out, and the wife was taking a nap. I want to apologize to Matt in Oregon. He sent me a fantastic meme of the AOC stuff that I was going to highlight. I'm not getting a lot of sleep. Um, well, last night, I guess after 11, I slept from 11 to 5, so I got six hours straight. That was probably the best since the surgery. Um, about every two hours she's moving or she's up. The last night she zonked. Somehow I cleaned up my phone. I forgot the picture was there, and I was going to send the picture to myself, and I just fucked up. So, Matt, I suck. I'm a terrible brother. I just suck, man. That was a really good, funny one, too, and I was going to use it on the show. But um, rarely is that going to happen for those that I uh, say every podcast, send me stuff. You're going to get highlighted, and you're going to get featured um, because usually I'm not sleep-deprived. <clears throat> With the heat coming down and July Fourth coming up, everybody be safe out there. Make sure you hydrate, beat the heat, drink water, folks. It's it's freaking hot as shit where I'm living. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs. I'm looking forward to July Fourth one. I'm going to do our usual holiday selection, and for the Sunday show, I'm going to place an excerpt from the. I guess it's the third best fireworks show ever, Nashville. I'm really kind of excited back in the day when it was just a little old Nashville, uh, 97 to 2000. They used to put it on TV, their fireworks show down in downtown Nashville. But then it became national and huge, and they don't air it. But this year, the, the ABC channel is going to air it. So I'm going to try to tape some of it because it is a really good show. Once again, thank you to Sydney, Florida for listening, for everybody else listening. A lot of listens, not a lot of podcast content coming out fresh, so it's kind of cool to see people go on the back um, catalog, but there's a lot of stuff out there. I referenced quite a few during this podcast, but it's there with studies and et cetera, et cetera. It's worth the listen, and there's even some funny skits back there that I, I've been trying to work on getting some new skits and doing some more levity in this show. As always, folks... Thank you for listening. Talk to you Thursday. Take care.
13: Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Make every day count.